Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, January 9th. Oh, the big news of the day. Secretary of State Lloyd Austin, who uh, went into the hospital and didn't tell anybody right around the holidays, uh, is being um, treated for complications to prostate cancer. Um, everybody uh, desperate for some new news on the cycle, making this huge deal. Oh, my God, he didn't tell anybody. You know, oh, my God, you think he had bigger fish to fry? If the guy was having complications uh, such that he needed another surgical procedure, I'm guessing that he was a little preoccupied. You know, been there, done that, and, um, you know, also I know that when you're, when it's somebody as important as him and he shows up at Walter Reed, they're not going to say, oh, you know what, Lloyd, why don't you just take a couple of aspirin, go home, and we'll see how you are in 24 hours. No, they're going to be, oh, my God, Secretary of State Lloyd Austin, quick. Let's just get him a room. No, no, no. Let's put him in ICU. That's right. We're going to watch him 24-7. In medical parlance, that is referring to somebody as a hot potato. A hot potato. You know how they always say they teach doctors when you look at a set of symptoms, um, hear horses, think horses, not zebras. It's probably the most mundane explanation not the most exotic or it's not some rare disease well if you're a certain level of important or if you have a certain medical history like i do with uh, having had cancer it changes the equation because uh, then when you go in and you've got symptoms (laughs) they go right to zebras oh my god And I asked my former um, personal doctor about it. I was like, you know, you know, I had these tests. Everybody got all excited and hysterical and what? And she explained to me, she said, you're now a hot potato. Nobody wants to be caught making a mistake with you. Um, So if you have had a bad disease, or if, like Lloyd Austin, you have a cancer diagnosis and you happen to be Secretary of State, you are hot potato with a capital H and a capital P. And something that would have been treated maybe more casually in a regular person, they're going to go right to the most... um, the most involved treatment, the best care... You know, so, yes, maybe what happened to him warranted all that. And maybe a regular person would have been treated exactly the same way. But maybe not. You know, maybe not. But regardless, some of the complications from prostate cancer can be very, very complicated and very miserable. And, um... When you're feeling miserable, I think um, the first thing on your mind, the second thing on your mind, the third thing on your mind, none of those things are, oh, my gosh, I better tell my boss. Mm, Not so much. 
Not so much. So let's all just wait and see what's happening. The nation was not put at risk. You know? Let's just all take a deep breath, shall we? Sheesh. <clears throat> and, um, and just let this play out. Okay, let's give Lloyd a bit of a break. Um, Andy tells me that uh, George from the South Side has called in with a comment on this. Hey, George, thanks for calling today. How are you? I'm doing pretty well and glad that you're back in the saddle again and running the show. Me too. Um, although I, I have to say I'm at least in partial disagreement with you on this. Lloyd Austin's a career military officer. He's fully steeped in the realities and procedures of the chain of command and of succession in the event of uh, an absence somewhere, a link in the chain of command. Um, the way our defense, national defense is set up, the line of authority goes directly from the president to the secretary of defense and then to the uh, four stars that are in charge of the major military commands. So, for Secretary Austin not to have fully informed the commander-in-chief of any disability was an inexcusable faux pas. Well, my and understanding, George, it, is that it, his prostate cancer hasn't been a secret, that that's been something he's been dealing with for a while. So I don't think it was this big cancer diagnosis that he was hiding. I think he had some complications he went into the hospital. He probably um, thought it was going to be in and out, no big deal. And one thing led to another. And I think it's quite possible events got away from him. And, you know, I just think had there been a crisis, it would have been figured out sooner rather than later. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have given somebody a heads up, but I'm guessing if I had to guess, I'm guessing events moved faster than he was expecting. And uh, if it was just him and his wife at the hospital, you know, she wouldn't necessarily know what she was supposed to do. Um, I'm just, you know, having been through all this kind of stuff before, I know that events can really get away with you, from you. And yes, you know, yes, he understands chain of command. He absolutely does. Um, but maybe, maybe just maybe, Part of it was things moved quicker than he expected. And, and, you know, he was also probably hoping, dear God, let me just get in and out and get this fixed and not have to make a big deal out of it. And, and that may have been where his judgment was, could have been better. I agree. And the reality is because of the enormous capabilities of the right wing propaganda machine, this is like throwing a pile of raw meat in front of the rabid red dogs of the right. And it's free racist propaganda for them because the secretary is black. They're going to make every bit of use out of this that they can to make him look bad and to make the president look bad. I mean, this is this kind of situation is covered by procedure that goes back generations and even centuries that everybody should have been informed. He should have temporarily stepped aside and the, the number two in the sec, in the Defense Department should have been running things. And then there would have been uh, nothing, nothing to explain, nothing to justify, nothing to rationalize. I mean, yeah. I, I have the greatest respect for your for your acumen and your knowledge and experience and intelligence. But everything you just said to me 
I'm sorry, it sounded like spin. These are all experienced people. Joe Biden's been around for 50 years in public service, and Lloyd Austin nearly as as long. They know how things are supposed to run, and they just didn't do it. It's it's a kind of clumsy incompetence that I find almost unbelievable. Well, I agree with you that the way things evolved certainly has given those in opposition fodder. I, you know, I'm right, I'm right there with you on that. Um, I just think that, you know, for all of his um, lofty jobs, you know, he's, he's a human being and um, human beings are sometimes flawed. And I don't know if you know this, George, but sometimes men uh, really don't want to acknowledge um, the seriousness of what they're in the middle of. Sometimes they really like to minimize it. And especially when it comes to medical stuff, I don't know, maybe George, you're the exception to that. But most of the men I know would, uh, would prefer to say, oh, no big deal. This, this is nothing. I'll be in, I'll be in and out, you know? <clears throat> well, that's okay if you, if you're just, uh, a regular Joe in, in a regular life, but. You're the secretary of defense of the biggest and most powerful military in the world that has constant challenges every day. The person running the show has got to be on top of their game. And uh, he should he should have just stepped aside for a day or two. Uh, that yeah. would have been covering oh, if, and if he wasn't going to tell the White House, whoever was in line to make decisions, if he was out of the picture, you're absolutely right. That person should have been given a heads up, by the way. going in, I don't think it's going to be a big deal, but just in case, you should be on standby. Yes, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I can can easily see that the the lunatic uh, people on the right in the uh, House of Representatives are going to want to compile a committee to look into this, or one of their phony government uh, oversight committees are going to want to look into this, and they'll make every bit of hate this that they can. So these are... Experienced people, Biden yeah. and Secretary Austin. It's hard to understand how they make a mistake like this. It's just yeah. frustrating, frustrating to no end. Um, you know, sort of a first do no harm to the president, um, because yeah. as close as we are to the election, everything has to be looked at in that kind of a frame of reference. I, I see where you're going with this, George. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying you're wrong. Um here um, when you take a look at the big picture. I think sometimes humans, though, get caught up in the little picture. And, um, you know, I mean, he supposedly had some treatment that put him under general anesthesia, but I'm wondering if he knew that was coming. My guess is um, that he probably did not. Um, But I I see where you're coming, George. I, I, I do. And I don't mean to sound like spin. I'm just trying to, I guess give it a kind of a more human framing. I mean, I know that people who have big jobs are supposed to always remember that kind of responsibility that they carry. But sometimes I think they're just flawed people. But thanks for the call. Um, We have um, another caller who wants to weigh in on this. Ike is calling in from Charleston. Go ahead, Ike. Yeah, you know, with all due deference to George, uh, you know, we've got a, a right-wing bunch of loonies that uh, went ape berserk over Barack Obama wearing a tan suit, and I'm surprised <laughs> they didn't investigate that. So, 
for me to sit around and worry what the right wing is going to say and uh, worry about their little committees and their little Hunter Biden circus show and their little impeachment circus show and all this garbage. Uh, most people in this country, as far as I know, uh, that are of any sort of rational thinking uh, are more concerned with getting legislation passed and getting laws passed and dealing with the real problems that this country's facing mm-hmm. rather than the circus sideshows that these circus freaks keep throwing up. And let me point something out to you. We live in the 21st century, okay? We have electronic communications, uh, whether it's the president or any agency head or uh, you name it, uh, it, it's very hard for anyone to get out of communications with anybody else, okay? And there's also a staff around Mr. Secretary of the Defense that's perfectly capable in a lot of cases of handling just about anything that comes across a desk. That's why we've got the Pentagon. That's why we've got a whole lot of things in place, yeah. okay? It's redundant systems. So, George, you know what? Calm yourself down, slow your roll. Don't worry <laughs> about the Republicans. Everybody knows they're looking to make, uh, you know, they're yeah. looking to make, uh, uh, you know, uh, gold bricks out of uh, horse manure. That's their job. That's and all I they know how to do. Ike, along these lines, because this is a personal health issue, even though he's Secretary of State, I I think that the Republican Party will not find this is no Hunter Biden laptop for them. I think that um, people are going to uh, only want to hear so much about this, particularly when it's such a, you know, such a personal health issue as as he's going through. And and I and you're right. Um, There was other people. That's why I said to George that, you know, had something happened, I'm sure the people who needed to know would have known what they needed to do. Um as quickly as humanly possible. Lloyd Austin does not work in a vacuum by any stretch of the imagination, Ike. Um, oh, thank yeah. you. The, thank you the for the drunk. call. I actually, yeah. you know, there's lots of guys, <laughs> lots of guys calling in on this. Uh, thanks, Ike, for that call. Uh, let's go to Downers Grove. Rich is calling in from Downers Grove. Hello, Rich. How are you? Okay, listen, I had prostate cancer in 2016. And, I'm sorry uh, about that. Things- Things really got bad, and I was, uh, because of the uh, whole thing with the Obama and and the uh, uh, Medical Care Act and everything else, Republicans cut the funding on where I was supposed to go to get my surgery done. So I had about 30 to 45 days to live, and uh, I'll just tell you one thing. When something like this all happens, you know, something tragic like this happens to you, you know, your mind is, is dealing with what you're dealing with. I made a deal with God back then. If you keep me here, I'll do your work. And fortunately, I'm still here. I'm still doing his work. Uh, but I have a brain tumor now, and I'm going in. I have three of them. And I'm going in to actually have some work done. They're going to actually go into my head and, and try to find out what's going on. I had a brain tumor five years ago, two and a half years ago, they radiation, they, they zapped it out, but now I've got three. So they want to find uh, out what's going God, on. Rich, so, that sucks. 
But you know what, Joan, I'm going to just tell you one thing. You know what, I, I don't ever, like, say, oh, thank you. Or, you know, back when I, in 16, when I had this whole thing happen, I was mad. I was mad at everybody. I was mad at God. And one morning I woke up and I said, you know what, I'm done being mad. If you're going to take me, take me. If you're going to send me down there, it's fine, because I know people down there. <laughs> but... Well, it's the truth, Joan. That's exactly my attitude. And I'll tell you what, I've gotten through it. And I've done a lot of good work. I, I visit senior home, homes now, and I serve Holy Communion and pray with disabled seniors. And um, I do stuff like that. So it's, you know, I'm still here. And if the Lord keeps me here, I'll keep doing his work. If not, he can take me, you know. Yeah, I hear you. And this guy, with what he went through, what he's going through, mentally, I mean, are you kidding me? Anybody that says, oh, wow, he should have called this, he should have did. No, he was dealing with something that's serious. Yeah. And his mind was on that. Yep, indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Uh, let's take one more call on this. Uh, let's go to Dave from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, hey, Joan. Happy New Year here. Uh, Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. The, uh, yeah, with the Defense Secretary Austin, not Secretary of State. And, uh, the, um, he, apparently he had, uh, had informed some and the Pentagon spokesman is blaming a lapse on a key staffer being out sick with the flu. Oh yeah, his but, Lloyd Austin's second in command um, was yes, home that, was home with the flu, and they're saying that, that also interrupted the communication with the White House. Yeah, but somebody else should have been. If she was home, then she should have been. You know, the next in, in line. You know, they had that chain of command. <clears throat> yeah, like, like you say, if. Uh, they're out on the battlefield, and, okay, he gets killed, then this secretary, this assistant secretary gets it. She gets it. Well, then there's another one below. Yeah. In this case, it was a lady, you know, that's the deputy that um, would take over. And, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a big of a flub-up, and uh, President Biden doesn't need any kind of flub-ups when it comes to the military. I mean, he's still got a black eye after Afghanistan, that pullout, so... You know, yeah, I agree. It, it, I mean, that you know, for there to be a bump in the road, the timing, uh, since we're less than a year away from the election, isn't optimal. But I think, uh, I do think this will turn out to be uh, just a bump in the road. I, I really do. And I'm sure if Lloyd Austin's situation is um, is very serious, I'm sure he will resign. You know, so I, I think that this is this is just Republicans looking for anything that they can be cranky about, and that's what they have found. I agree right. with you, Dave. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for the call. And, um, well, I wasn't planning to do the whole first hour, a half hour on this, but um, I do want to share with you something that I saw over the weekend, you know, and I think it relates to the topic at hand because it relates to how a cancer diagnosis can really derail you. And um, I'm telling you, there's always, there's before cancer and there's after cancer. And if you aren't in the club, 
You don't get what I'm talking about. And if you're in the club, I don't even have to explain it to you. But um, over the weekend, one of uh, CNN's anchors, Sarah Sidner, ended her program with a personal note. And I'm going to share this with you just so you get a sense of um, maybe what was going on with Lloyd Austin and his family. Listen to Sarah Sidner. As we end our broadcast today, I have a personal note that I would like to share with you. Um, I want to start by doing this and asking you a big favor. Just take a second to recall the names of eight women who you love and know in your life. Just eight. Count them on your fingers. Statistically, one of them will get or have breast cancer. I am that one in eight in my friend group. I have never been sick a day of my life. I don't smoke. I rarely drink. Breast cancer does not run in my family. And yet here I am with stage three breast cancer. It is hard to say out loud. I am in my second month of chemo treatments and will do radiation and a double mastectomy. Stage three is not a death sentence anymore for the vast majority of women. But here is the reality that really shocked my system when I started to research more about breast cancer, something I never knew before this diagnosis. If you happen to be a black woman, you are 41% more likely to die from breast cancer than your white counterparts. 41%. So to all my sisters, black and white and brown out there, please, for the love of God, get your mammograms every single year. Do your self-exams. Try to catch it before I did. Now here's something I could never ever have predicted would happen to me. I have thanked cancer for choosing me. I'm learning that no matter what hell we go through in life, that I am still madly in love with this life. And just being alive feels really different for me now. I am happier because I don't stress about foolish little things that used to annoy me. And now every single day that I breathe another breath, I can celebrate that I am still here with you. I am here with my co-anchors, my colleagues, my family, and I can love and cry and laugh and hope. And that, my dear friends, is enough. There you go. Um, Hard enough to do, but having to go through it in public (laughs) is um, an extra special thing. That I uh, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, Lloyd Austin's situation, I think, is a molehill being made into a mountain. I think it will and should pass quickly. I think Republicans are going to uh, get themselves a world of grief if they try to make his uh, situation and the breakdown in communication some sort of major security issue. Um I don't care if you are the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense, or if you are a CNN anchor, or if you are somebody uh, who brings up groceries at Jewel. Believe me, um, it is difficult to remember where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do when you get a diagnosis like this. And... um 
when you go in for treatment and maybe find the treatment is a little bit more involved and a little bit more difficult than you first expected. I think we've got to give uh, a little bit of break here because no matter who they are, they're human beings, okay? So uh, let's uh, take a break and get started on the rest of our day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I welcome back to our program Jared Yates Sexton, author and political analyst. His most recent book is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming back. New Year, Joan. Thanks for having me. Uh, how's how's that weather? I hear you've been up to your eyeballs in snow. You know, it's it's great getting out there, shoveling snow for like three or four hours. I mean, you can't ask for anything better. <laughs> yeah, you know, you really ought to move to the Chicago area. We don't have uh, uh, we don't have those tough winters that you guys have out in the in the heartland. I've always loved the temperate weather there. So every time I visited, it's not been windy at all. It's great. It's balmy here. Um, I, you know, I was thinking as I was reading the title of your book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis. Jared, it kind of feels like the coming crisis is here. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, you know, when you write a book, you start doing it a couple of years before they come out, and then uh, to watch everything start to coalesce around it. Uh, we are we are at a crossroads, and being in 2024, the actual year, I think is making everything come into full focus and vision. And I think um, I think it would take a lot of work right now to deny that we are coming into a crisis and that things are getting very, very serious very quickly. Yeah. Uh, uh, coming to a head, one, one might one might almost say, um, as you see as you see this situation uh, politically evolving. I want you to put your political analyst hat on here. One thing that I think is interesting and potentially troubling. I I personally think in a contest between Trump and Biden, I think Biden is going to win hands down simply because even the people who don't like Biden are going to feel that he's at least a sane choice and a, and a decent human being and, and vote for him. But one thing that concerns me, I was watching um, MSNBC and I'm starting to hear more and more interviews. Um, I saw one with uh, Joy Reid and she was talking about how Biden made the appearance at um in South Carolina at the Mother Emanuel AME Church and how the audience just loved him. And one of her guests said, yeah, they absolutely did. But those are, you know, Biden's people. And, you know, anytime he's going to go to that church, he's going to be literally preaching to the choir. The the people that Biden really needs to figure out how to reach out to are the sort of black people who wouldn't be in that church and both here on the station and on Joy Reid, a little bit later on Stephanie Rule, there were some African-American leaders who are saying that, you know, there is a certain element of the African-American community that is expressing frustration with Joe Biden. Like, what has he done for me 
kind of a frustration and that they really want to make sure that the campaign effort and the White House understands that that's happening and can try to address it in some way. So my question to you is two parts. Do you think that is an accurate description of where we are now? And if if yes, what should the White House be doing? Well, I, I think what you've you've summed up there is, is correct. One of the things that has happened since the beginning of Joe Biden's term is we've seen a lot of so-called red states start to clamp down and disenfranchise voters, particularly black voters throughout the South. And, you know, there was a lot of push and pull, a lot of fighting between on the ground activists and, and the White House. And people were saying, we need help here. And the Democratic Party over the past couple of decades has largely relied on grassroots activists such as Stacey Abrams to take care of things like that in these states. Um, it has led to a lot of tension between those groups and the Biden administration. I think there does need to be some uh, some reaching out there, some some, uh, you know, at, at least some conversation about what can be done. And I actually think this is something that Biden and the people around him need to uh, look at, which is. They need to not just say that they'll hold back Trump and the damage he can do, but give us an explanation of how you're going to repair some of these rights that have been taken away, how you're going to go ahead and do things like you know, do things like codify a woman's right to choose into law. And what is your vision for the future? How are you going to not just maintain the rights that we have left, but how are you going to restore the, the ones that have been taken and also continue to march forward? And I think the Biden campaign uh, has largely had a problem with that. So I think that's probably something they need to take a look at and probably refine their message going forward. There was a lot of uh, press, a lot of words written about Obama's most recent meeting with Joe Biden and that essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I took away from that was that Obama was suggesting a more decentralized sort of campaign um, giving people in positions of authority the the permission to actually do things and make statements and take stands uh, on behalf of Joe Biden, as opposed to everything flowing from a few people in the White House. It was even suggested that um, one of Obama's big campaign people, David Plouffe, uh, should be brought in uh, to the Biden campaign. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was just discussing this on my podcast yesterday, and it's actually really interesting. This meeting between Obama and Biden took place a couple of months ago, and it just got leaked to the major newspapers in the last week, which tells you something, which is Obama and his team do not feel like they've been hurt. They do not feel like their suggestions have been taken. There's a lot of tension between Obama and Biden, and Biden is very independent. I think he still holds a grudge from the fact that Barack Obama handpicked Hillary Clinton in 2016. But in this, Biden probably does need to listen to Obama. Something that has happened is that he is very, very controlling when it comes to his campaigns and his staffs. And if you are an incumbent president, you don't have a lot of time to spend on your campaign. You need people out on the road doing these types of things. And so far, the Biden White House has had a problem with communication. It's actually one of the weakest aspects of their operation. 
they need to get outside the White House and they need to create a better campaign because so far, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Bidenomics didn't work. A lot of these other pushes didn't work. They need to bring in some other people who know how to spin some narratives and, and bring out some more PR. It does seem that recently the White House, while maybe not authorizing senior staff, they have made a push for other people in the administration to get out there and, and, and tout the message. You know, Janet Yellen wrote that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about, hey, the economy's great. And the head of the White House economic advisors, you know, made himself available to media outlets across the country to do, to do interviews, uh, which I thought was a great idea. I thought that it was, it was great to hear somebody other than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, touting touting the message. Uh, but is that enough? Well, it's really strange. I mean, Kamala Harris has been missing more than our defense secretary. I mean, she hasn't been out there at all, which is, you know, really interesting that the Biden administration has clamped her down. But one of the biggest weaknesses, and this has happened since the beginning, people might remember the first two years of Biden's term, more or less Joe Manchin was treated like the president of the United States of America. Like all, you know, Biden was working behind the scenes trying to, you know, pa- pass a lot of this legislation. But meanwhile, they were giving so much credit to Manchin and then Kirsten Cinema for a while. They, they have seemed allergic to taking um, the, the, you know, the, the spoils of their victory and, and telling people what they've done and what they've pushed things forward. Um, there needs to be some sort of a new push here. And, you know, when you get into the election year, that's when you make things happen. It's time to shake things up. It's time to get a different message. And, and hopefully at some point they'll, they'll hear this, uh, you know, this Obama leak for what it is, which is another urging to try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, before this Obama leak took place m- months ago, uh, it surfaced that uh, David Axelrod had some criticisms of what was going on uh, campaign wise on on Biden's behalf. But then I read another source that said, well, if you look back, Axelrod, even during the Obama years, was never a huge Joe Biden fan. So like any criticisms he's making of Biden, you know, you kind of have to take with a grain of salt. What do you know about that relationship? Is it fraught? Uh, it, it's a really uncomfortable situation. You know, one of the things that we get is we always get this picture of a president and a vice president. You know, they're always good friends and buddies and showing up Romance. all these things together. Yeah, but the vice president is the easiest whipping person that you can find. Like every single failure that happens is thrown on them. I mean, Kamala Harris has basically been thrown under the bus multiple times in this administration. But, you know, give me an example. Sure. If you remember during the first year of Biden's campaign, any time that things would start to fall apart, you would see all of these leaks in The Washington Post or New York Times about how difficult Harris was or her staff was. And that was basically, you know, to throw some political chum out there to, to make people talk about something else. And Obama did that constantly with Biden. And I think Axelrod and Plouffe and the entire gang around them really enjoyed using Joe Biden as sort of the person to, to be the fall person. And so there's a lot of tension between Obama's teams uh, and, and Biden's team. And so we're seeing that play out now, particularly if, if people want to know the inside scoop on this. The Obama team is the state of the art, modern political team. The Biden team is not up to snuff in that regard. And so they're always going to have tension between them and they're not going to always see eye to eye, which has honestly hindered this entire thing a little bit. 
Tell me what you mean by that, that Obama's political team is state of the art. Yeah, Obama's team more or less was an analytical team uh, starting even back in 2008. I mean, they were on the cusp of all this algorithmic campaigning, and, and they always have been. Meanwhile, what you've seen is that Obama's team, after he left office, they've gone to every major corporation, every tech effort, you name it, right? They're all out there with these big, giant private sector jobs. There was not a lot of talent left over in the Democratic Party, and Biden's team, I mean, I think they've been adequate, but where they fail is where Obama's team has sort of soared. Hmm. So what would you suggest trying to pull those people back? Um, And if so, is it just David Plouffe or are there others that you, you know, do you think the Biden campaign needs some fresh ideas and fresh blood and fresh perspective? Oh, they absolutely do. And it's going to take a lot of eating crow from Joe Biden, who's a proud politician. I don't think he likes the way that Obama treated him going into 2016. And I think it's, you know, it's going to take some eating of crow. And I, I listen, I have my problems with David Plouffe, uh, you know, professionally and politically. I, I But he is a fantastic person to have in that campaign. He has a lot of roots in Delaware. I think he would be perfect for Biden and that team. They need something different. And right now, I mean, you and I are probably going to spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. Because that's all anybody can talk about. The Biden team isn't giving people anything to talk about besides these struggles that have started off this campaign. I read recently, though, that people were saying, and I went by people, I mean the political pundits I read, that um, that Joe Biden, you know, because you're right, you know, Biden, Bidenomics, you know, infrastructure, all that stuff doesn't seem to have made the impact I think that Biden hoped it would with the average voter so that maybe it's time to reframe this as a fight for democracy, you know, autocracy versus democracy. And that's what's at stake here. Your thoughts on that? Oh, I think that absolutely has to be part of it. The other issue is, you know, and and this is the thing. I think a lot of the Democratic establishment expected Joe Biden to step aside. I I think they expected him to be a one-term president and then give way to whoever the next generation is. And one of the problems is that Joe Biden still has his feet firmly planted in the 20th century. We need a vision for the 21st century. Where are we going? What are we going to do? And we've yet to hear that. And I think if we can get that and also talk about this autocracy and authoritarianism, I think everybody's going to recognize that for what it is, which is a clear and divisive choice. Okay, you you said something there that that I want to that I want to go go back to. Um, the fact that uh, Joe Biden's uh, rooted in the in the 20th century, he's got a reputation for, you know, being a behind the scenes guy. He's got a reputation for being incredibly loyal to his people. Um, both of those things would seem to make it very difficult for him to get everybody together and say, guys, you know what? I think we got to go in a new direction. I think we got to freshen this up. I think we need some new blood. It just seems like those words would have a difficult time coming out of his mouth. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that we've seen from Joe Biden is that he he has been very steady in terms of the way he pushes himself. But one of the things I think Biden has going for him, and, and this is actually incredible looking through the history of it, he's a great weather vane. 
he can tell where the Democratic Party is going and where the, the temperature of the country is moving. I think we're probably going to see something in the next few months that is going to drastically change this campaign. It has to happen because right now it, it, it really is not getting the attention it needs to have. It's not gaining the momentum it needs. And right now, everybody's paying attention to Donald Trump, the GOP primary, and Biden has become a secondary thought. I, but I do think eventually something will have to shift. Talk to me about Kamala Harris, the pros and the cons. I've I've been, you know, I agree with you. She doesn't seem to be exactly front and center. You know, oh, let's have her do immigration. No, let's have her do this. So and I've heard, though, that she's wildly popular when she goes to speak, say, at college campuses. So what are her strengths? What are her weaknesses? How would you use her? Well, and I think that goes exactly to what her strengths are, which is, you know, within and, and you know, we have to we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that Joe Biden is a, a, an older man. And I think that Harris has a lot of energy that she brings out to her public appearances. But also part of the issue that has taken place with her being vice president, again, the, the president does not have a lot of faith in her and his team does not have a lot of faith in her. Her team and the president's team, they don't get along, which is a pretty regular thing. She's not prepared for these things. And you'll see that sometimes. That's why these gaffes happen. But if they could get her out on the road as a surrogate, and I think Gavin Newsom would make a terrific surrogate as well. If you can get them out there as a team, I think they'll be able to communicate the, you know, the, the pros of the Biden administration and also go ahead and lend this thing an air of youth and energy and vigor that it needs. There seem to be a number of people. I agree with you, Gavin Newsom. I think Eric Swalwell, hell, Cory Booker, um, that they have a kind of a youthful energy about them that would bring a lot to the campaign. So why aren't they being used more? That's a great question. And, and I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that the Democratic Party just has not been very well organized for a long time. That goes right to the top with leadership. Um, you know, what needs to happen going into 2024 is that we, if Joe Biden is going to stay in this race, he needs to be seen as the steady hand who is going to deliver us to a future. And we need to see the next generation. That's Gavin Newsom. That's uh, Kamala Harris. That's J.B. Pritzker. You know, that's any number of these people who can get out there and actually show us where we're going. But that's the message that needs to happen. Not just that Joe Biden's going to make everything fine and then do whatever. Like we need to move some sort of direction into the future. Are you saying that this is Jamie Harrison's fault as chairman of the Democratic National Committee? It has not been the most smoothly operated machine. I will say that. Um, what we do understand is that the money has been flowing and that's one of the responsibilities. You need yeah, to make sure that the donations <laughs> are coming up. Yeah, that's a big chunk of it. And I think we've seen that he's capable of doing that. But somebody in that operation needs to come together and organize because the de facto leader of the Democratic Party right now is Barack Obama. And Barack Obama is really busy producing Hollywood movies and stuff for Netflix. <laughs> hey, like, maybe he needs to take a break from that, Jared. I completely agree. And honestly, it's been a little disturbing for me because one of the most popular and also Michelle Obama's in that same uh, category as well. Two of the most popular political leaders in this country have not been that involved in our politics at a time where it's really, really needed. Is that because it has been communicated to them that a more active participation is not welcome? That is a great question. But I, I do want to remind your listeners that Joe Biden would not have won the Democratic nomination, would not be president of the United States of America, if Barack Obama had not brought together all the Democratic rivals before South Carolina and said, this is going to be Joe Biden, that's how this works. 
So that whether or not he's welcome or not, uh, Barack Obama needs to play a role in this. You know, uh, Joe Biden said, and I he only I, I only caught this comment once, um, but he said that he as he was definitely absolutely going to run for reelection because he was the best person to defeat Donald Trump, which some people took to mean that if it was somebody other than Donald Trump, maybe just maybe Joe Biden would step aside. Do you remember that comment? And what do you how did you interpret it? I I do remember that comment. And all I will say is that we tell ourselves a lot of stories to uh, make ourselves believe a lot of things. I, I think there are a lot of people who could defeat Donald Trump in 2024. And I do think that Joe Biden and, and again, I've had I've had things in this presidency that I've, I've thought were great. I've had things in this presidency that I really, really not appreciated. Um, I, I, I think he can beat Donald Trump, but I think there are a lot of candidates out there who could beat Donald Trump as well. You, um, you're a political analyst, a political, um, a professional political observer. In with the current team that Joe Biden has right now, uh, is there anybody who you think is a real standout who can, if we're maybe we're given a little bit more authority or allowed to be more of a mouthpiece, could really make a difference? You know, the funniest thing about this is that that operation has been. So quiet and has been given so little leeway. And I would tell you this, if you ask me who the top political decision maker is within the Biden campaign, the answer is very simple. It's Joseph Robinette Biden. That's it. And for a person to I mean, he is dealing with two of the biggest wars that we have seen in in a generation. Uh, He is dealing with a, a country that is trying to come apart at the seams. He's got better things to do. And his instincts might not be perfectly good. They're, that team is not set up right now to win. And and if he does win, I think that has more to do with the fact that people really dislike Donald Trump. Uh, but no, it is not set up in a situation right now. They need to bring some people in or they need to shuffle some decks and see if some people could be given some responsibility. But they're not having it right now. Um, Gavin Newsom has done everything but write a letter to the editor saying, please, oh, please, oh, please, uh, Joe Biden, you know, use me more. I mean, you know, he wanted to debate Ron DeSantis and and he was out there with um, Sean Hannity, who apparently he's now buddies with. God help us all. Um, Why would Joe Biden not use him more? Do you think do you think that there's some fear that a, somebody like a Gavin Newsom will make Biden look bad or old or out of step? I mean, is it a jealousy thing? Is it a insecurity thing? I mean, I hate to put it into high school or middle school terms, but I can't come up with a decent reason why somebody who is so well-spoken and handles himself so well is not out there front and center. Yeah, I, I can't help but psychoanalyze it either. I mean, I, I was actually incredibly impressed by Gavin Newsom's uh, quote-unquote debate with Ron DeSantis. Fox News literally gave Ron DeSantis the questions ahead of time, and Gavin Newsom ate his lunch and then some. I think you'd be a fantastic surrogate out there. But one thing I want to point out, and this is another thing in the history of Biden, 
it doesn't seem like he likes people who are too eager to get close to him and do that. Uh, I brought up Stacey Abrams earlier, and people might remember the moment she said that she would be open to being his vice president, she became persona non grata. She basically disappeared off the face of the Democratic earth. I, I don't know exactly what the, the hesitancy is with Gavin Newsom, but I think he should be out on the road for Biden yesterday. It's not like that joke. I wouldn't want to join any club that would have me, is it? Well, you know, what's funny about that is there is something to that in politics. I mean, you know, I, I, I've had to unfortunately analyze Donald Trump so many times in, in my work. But, you know, this is a person who absolutely hates when a person sucks up to him. He actually enjoys people who, who criticize him so he can break their spirit and show them off in public. You know, Mitt Romney cannot be reached for comment. Uh, but Joe Biden has a real problem with this, seemingly. And, and maybe it's about age. Maybe it's about energy. I don't know. But something there has to give. I heard um, somebody say that the only way that anybody's going to get Joe Biden to uh, change course or do things differently is if they go through Jill Biden, that if, <laughs> if it comes from his wife, that maybe that would be a criticism he would accept. What do you think about that? I don't know if that's the way to do it, but if somebody has a beat on it, I mean, go for it. I, I have talked to so many Democratic uh, uh, strategists and communication experts, and all of them simply say, and, and this was back in the day where everybody didn't know if Biden was going to run for re-election. And everybody shrugged and they said, if he wants to run, he's going to run. There's nothing the party can do. There's nothing that anybody can do. This is one of the most hard-headed people that you're going to find. So I, if, if Jill can talk sense into him, if Dr. Biden can talk to him, I, by all means, somebody needs to. Oh, my goodness. Um, it is early days, if you can call less than a year to the election, early days. How do you see um, – the current effort evolving. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I still think that they're in um, low key mode and, you know, you don't want to peak too soon, Jared. You absolutely don't want to peak too soon. But when do you think we will see more aggressive campaigning or are we seeing it? And we, it just doesn't look that aggressive to us. Oh, we're definitely not seeing it. I, I, you know, the the thing about 2024 is that I don't know that I could tell you in any way, shape, or form what's going to happen in a month, much less in you know the, the next year. Um, this is one of the most volatile uh, election years that we're going to see since probably uh, 1968. And, you know, how that's going to take shape, you know, basically every single day the United States is having to try and handle Israel in the middle of like one of the biggest world crises mm. we've seen in forever. Uh, we have an authoritarian movement that's trying to actively dismantle democracy. I don't know when that's going to kick in or if it will. I mean, there, there's so much uh, reaction that's having to be carried out at this point. You're not seeing a lot of proactive measures. So, if, if, if it doesn't get started, I mean, it has to at least take over by summer, you know, whenever you get your convention. But something needs to happen. And I think people are starting to get a little anxious about it. Yeah. One thing that bothers me and maybe I don't know, maybe it shouldn't. <clears throat> I get the feeling, especially with all the protesters and everything, that somehow people seem to think that a resolving the situation in the Middle East is entirely up to Joe Biden. Oh, you know, there's no ceasefire. Well, Biden, why not? Um, not taking into account that while he certainly is a person with a lot of influence, 
it's not us. This isn't this isn't us attacking Gaza. You know, these are two separate entities. I think that people are going after him a little bit unfairly on this. Like somehow, why haven't you solved this, Joe Biden? What do you think? Is that fair or unfair? Well, I think there's a lot happening there. One, I, I, I wish that we would stop sending them weapons to use indiscriminately like this. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu and the people around him uh, have already been shown to be a criminal regime that are trying to stand power at all costs. That that doesn't add up to a lot of good situations. But I will also go ahead and put this out there, which is something I think a lot of Americans are having a hard time dealing with, which is the president isn't all that powerful anymore. It's been devalued. It's been undermined. Uh, You know, a lot of what's happened in our politics is that a lot of this oversight has been completely and utterly eradicated, leading to an ineffectual federal government. That happened on purpose. That was an intentionally designed plan, and we've gotten there. So, you know, you know, America looks around at this point. We're incredibly weak. We're being confronted by China and Russia and basically an axis of resistance that uh, is trying to chip away at us. There's no real easy way for any of these things to be done. It's an incredibly complex, disastrously dangerous time. And I think I think everyone needs to look at this and, and realize what it is, which is America is being tested in a way that it hasn't been tested since the 1940s. Yeah, I'm speaking to. Our our good friend here at WCPT, Jared Yates Sexton, author, political analyst, as you uh, heard him mention, he does have a podcast. Um, the, I just lost my sheet on you. What, the Muckrake, right? The Muckrake? The Muckrake podcast. Yeah. That's correct. Yes. I just lost your bio. And I, for once, my memory actually came through, Jared. Oh, uh, Jared and I are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more pol- political discussion right after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Jared Yates Sexton, who is the most recent book is Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. He also is the host of the Muckrake podcast. We have been talking about... Uh, the campaign that uh, Joe Biden and his folks are um, <laughs> are waging to try to retain the presidency. Uh, Jared, Jen Psaki said something a few months ago. This wasn't on her show on MSNBC. It was clearly a, a clip from a speech that she made somewhere. And she was talking about polling. And she said one thing that she has learned in her time in politics is that what there will be something that happens within a few months of the election. She said, maybe it'll happen in August. Maybe it'll happen in September. And whatever that big thing is, that will influence greatly how people vote for president. It could be economic something. It could be a military something. Um, she said something she said when in her experience, something always happens because people were asking her about the polling. And she said, so I would tell you not to pay attention to any polling, because whatever happens a few months before the election is going to have more to do with how people vote than any poll they answer to right now. What do you think about that? 
Well, you know, I had mentioned in the earlier segment that this is one of the most volatile election years that we have seen since at least 1968. And I'll go ahead and I'll lay out what this board looks like, because it is wild if you actually take a look at it. We have the top two candidates, both of whom are elderly men. And one of them, by the way, is on trial for over 90 charged crimes and does not take care of himself in terms of his health. Uh, Who knows if both or either of them is going to to make it to the election. On top of that, one of them might get thrown off of a whole slew of ballots for the first time since Abraham Lincoln, which is its own wild thing. We're facing two international ongoing crises. We've got a, a rival superpower that is very interested in unseating us as the main superpower. We have another uh, enemy in Russia that is in another country and has already actively gone after us. We have a war in the Middle East that could be turn, turned into a regional war uh, while we're talking about it. And our economy is all over the place. Artificial intelligence is going to knock off, I mean, if not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs. Uh, you know, and climate change makes everything really wonky and weird. I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen before November. And any prognosticating at this point, honestly, is is just not true. It, it is simply trying to answer a question or trying to sell something to folks. <laughs> okay, let's move on. You're probably really on pins and needles waiting for tomorrow night's CNN presidential debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Ooh, what's going to happen? Well, I, I am really excited about the, these things. Joan, you and I, and I'm sure some of your listeners are real political sickos, and we really enjoy <laughs> things like this. And, you know, I'm getting ready to head to Iowa, actually, to cover the caucuses. So I I am interested to see what the dynamic is going to be between them. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I've said this pretty regularly, is one of the worst candidates I have ever seen. He is genuinely not just untalented, but off-putting as an individual. Nikki Haley has now become the de facto challenger to Donald Trump, uh, the establishment's choice to replace him. Uh, Her instincts are terrible. And so to see them on that stage trying to make their way forward and and trying to come to some sort of uh, a pitch to Iowans, I think is going to be fascinating. But it just makes it clear the Republican Party is a historically unpopular party, but also deep, deep down, they're unsettling. They're off-putting. There's nothing that they offer anybody except for aggrievement and anger. And that's it. Everybody is talking about how um, Nikki Haley has... um she has flip-flopped. She has waffled. Um, she is trying to walk this knife edge of I'm different from Trump, but I love Trump. And you should love Trump. And I love Trump, but I'm different from Trump. And maybe I'm better than Trump. Um, everybody that I've read, most of the conservative columnists, perhaps I should say that I've read, say that she is campaigning to be Trump's vice president. I'm not sure. She may be campaigning to be his vice president, but I don't see a scenario where he picks her. Do you think she's campaigning to be vice president? Or do you think, like you mentioned before, since one candidate is old and doesn't take care of himself, she goes to bed every night praying on her hands and knees that there is a medical incident that takes Trump out of the race and then she'll be like the last man standing? 
Yeah, I don't see Nikki Haley being his vice president. One thing that Trump doesn't enjoy is someone that he once saw as loyal being disloyal. And I think her running, like, he has already painted her, and the MAGA world has already painted her as a deep state operative who's there to, you know, take over Trump and and take away MAGA. Um, I do think, and much like what Ron DeSantis' entire plan revolved around from the very beginning and has failed spectacularly, the entire idea is that maybe Donald Trump will be convicted and maybe he will be kept off the ballot. And we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to say when it comes to uh, Colorado and all these other different states where he could be potentially thrown off the ballot. She could potentially be the candidate of the Republican Party uh, by default, but I don't know if she would still enjoy the millions of voters that would support Donald Trump. There's already a rift there, and I'm not so sure that she can carry the torch after him. Who do you see Donald Trump picking as a running mate? Oh, I don't have a single clue at this point. It could be the My Pillow guy. Uh, I mean, listen, he could <laughs> well, pick I Mike read, Pence. Again, I read. Point. I think this was Jonathan Last from the Bulwark who said that. Um, you know, forget about it, Donald Trump, unless something medically derails him. He's the nominee. So the question is, will he pick a legitimate politician or will he pick a toady like they gave the example of a Carrie Lake to be his running mate? And I don't see any scenario where it's anything but a toady. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be somebody. But one of the things that Trump isn't going to want is somebody to upstage him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Mike Pence had all the charm of watching milk curdle on a counter. Mm. I, I, you know, I think he's going to want somebody that is going to, you know, kiss his boots and do whatever needs to be done. But I also think that he's going to be looking for someone more extreme. Mike Pence was more or less an olive branch to the establishment Republican Party. I don't think he's going to be looking for that at this point. I think the entire plan going into a potential second Trump presidency is a takeover, a hostile takeover. Yeah. And um, again, I don't even think a conviction would derail his campaign. I think the only thing that derails a Trump campaign is a serious uh, life-threatening medical occurrence of some kind. Do you see? I mean, there were jokes made a year ago about him being making an acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention and lifting up his pant leg and showing an ankle monitor. And it was made like a year and a half ago as a joke. But I think it could turn out to be our reality. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen and I get very frustrated, I've I've been covering this entire phenomenon now for eight years going actually more like nine And, you know, I keep hearing people say, well, is this the moment that the spell breaks with the MAGA supporters? And it's like, no, it's never going to break. He could he really could have shot somebody on Fifth Avenue and gotten away with it with these people. And so, yeah, I I don't think that there's anything beyond I I, I want to see him defeated democratically. I want to see him defeated at the ballot box. And and even then they won't believe it. But all these other sort of silver bullet, uh, you know, solutions, I just don't think they're going to work. And on top of that, they're going to inspire violence. So I I want to see this defeated. I want to move past it. I want to address the things that made a Trump presidency possible in the first place. But, uh, yeah, I I would really like to see this thing taken care of as opposed to being handled by some sort of uh, institution. Yeah. Um, Jared, we need to take a quick break. Um, Jared Yates Sexton and I will be back with important questions like how the hell did Ron DeSantis get to be the governor of Florida when we come right back after this? 
And now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Jared Yates Sexton's most recent book is Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Uh, he is a political analyst and author. Okay, uh, Ron DeSantis, the man doesn't even know how to laugh like a normal human being. You know, people have compared him to a robot, but frankly, I think that's a slam against robots. I mean, I've read Isaac Asimov. Robots are much more human than Ron DeSantis. The man is, uh, he doesn't like people. He doesn't like campaigning. He's awkward. He's um, ill at ease. How did this man get to be governor of California? Well, Joan, you know, I, I always like to say that he smiles like someone who's hiding a pocket full of fingernail clippings. <laughs> like this, this guy, Ron DeSantis is so off-putting, and it's incredible. I, I think a lot of us who were very worried about him, we thought he was going to be a more competent Donald Trump, and he would be able to take over where Trump left off. But we hadn't seen him challenged. And I think what happened in Florida is this, and this is this goes back to our earlier conversation. The Democratic Party has simply given up on many states, be it Florida or Ohio. Um, you know, the old Howard Dean 50 state strategy is completely gone, which, by the way, is what made it possible for Barack Obama's landslide in 2008. They've given up on these places. The fact that Ron DeSantis has not only been a two-term governor of Florida, but that he is an authoritarian powerhouse in that state, it only highlights that the Democratic Party has given up, that they haven't been there to challenge him, that they haven't been there to actually uh, you know, make him earn his spot. Because he is, honestly, one of the least talented politicians I've ever seen, at least from a personality standpoint. Uh, he is, I believe, term limited out, and everybody seems to think that of the people who've made noises about running, one of the most serious contenders is um, Matt Gates uh, from Congress. He, the uh, Kevin McCarthy slayer, Matt Gates. Do you think somebody as polarizing as Matt Gates will inspire the Democratic Party of Florida to get up and do something and run a, a candidate and actually fight for this thing? Oh, Joan, I just feel so terrible for the people of Florida. I had not heard that speculation. Oh, wow. Um, if, Matt Gates, if Matt Gates was the Republican nominee for governor of Florida, the Democratic Party needs to hold a all-hands-on meeting and get some money down there because that is a... That is an invitation to to take over the governor's house. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think the Democratic Party needs to get serious about going back into these states because you have a lot. Again, the the Republican Party is historically unpopular and very very off-putting and vulnerable. Like you need to go into a lot of these states and win. And I think what we saw in 2020 and all these midterms is the Democratic Party can win there simply because of how unpopular the Republican Party actually is. Did you say unpopular the Republican Party is? I thought Florida was a red state. Yeah, there are a lot of this idea that we're only fighting over five or six different states. You know, I'm from I'm from the state of Indiana, and I don't know if people know this, but the Ku Klux Klan ran the state of Indiana in the 20th century. You know who won Indiana in 2008? It was Barack Hussein Obama II. If you go into these states, you spend the money, you have the energy, and you actually make a pitch to them, you can convert a lot of these places. Arizona and Georgia and Texas are begging to be turned into blue states. And I'll tell you, I think Florida.
Florida and Ohio can be as well, simply because the Republican Party doesn't have anything to offer anybody. Um, do you think we can take back Texas? administration having trouble with some african-american voters like texas and a lot of these other so-called red states have been uh you know just gerrymandering and disenfranchising people left and right and the reason they're doing it is because they look at the numbers and they understand that you know they're not going to hold control over these states any longer unless they you know try and take people's voting rights away i think texas could absolutely be flipped in the next 10 years you think there's an Ann Richards waiting in the wings? And for those of you who are younger, OK, Ann Richards was a Democratic governor of uh, Texas. And man, she was she was fun. She was forceful. She was tough. She gave, I think, a keynote speech at uh, the Democratic National Convention in, in 88. And uh, Texas didn't used to be what it is now with the. Paxton's of the world, God help us. Yeah, I, I think she was an immensely talented politician. I think what we've seen over the past few years, particularly with someone like Beto O'Rourke, you know, who, who took uh, Ted Cruz to the limit, I think there is a generation of Texans who are tired of this. And it's not just demographically, it's also philosophically and generationally. They're tired of Texas being the old Texas. Also, there's a ton of tech jobs that are moving to Texas from California. There's a real opportunity to flip Texas over and turn it into a completely different state, but they have to start finding that talent. They have to find the people who can speak across the aisle and bring some people over and, and get some different votes. But I, I do think that's within reach for sure. Somebody uh, just texted in to me that they had heard or read that Ron DeSantis's wife is gaining traction as a potential candidate. Have you heard anything about that? I hadn't, but, you know, I've seen her campaign on his behalf, and she seemed like the person in the family who had the talent. I mean, you know, uh, people might not know this <laughs> well, about Ron you know, I've DeSantis. always read that she was the one who s sort of pushed him into politics and propped him up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and that's been the story all along is that she's the one who sort of like pulled the strings and all of this. But people might not know this about Ron DeSantis. He was a lawyer who oversaw uh, a lot of the torture that took place in places like Abu Ghraib during the war on terror. That's how he feels. There's not even like the beginning of a veneer of likability or charm behind him. Like it is a it is a surreal experience being near him. And I think his wife has more talent than him, which uh, I did not expect to be saying that a few months ago. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, I don't think that's a huge recommendation since he is basically a pretty talentless human being. I mean, I've never run for office, and I think I have more talent than Ron DeSantis. Um, uh, Joan, you would have my vote over Ron beyond DeSantis. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for just a second, I want to I want to focus on Iowa and New Hampshire. You said you were getting ready to take off for for Iowa for the caucuses. Uh, do you think it's going to, on the Republican side, just be a Donald Trump sweep? Uh, CNN was reporting this morning that in New Hampshire, in New Hampshire, oh, my goodness, Nikki Haley was now only trailing Trump in single digits, no more double digits. Um, what do you think? What do you think you're going to see in here? I think uh, 
Donald Trump is going to win the Iowa caucus, which is uh, really interesting. Uh, eight years ago, people not, might not remember this, but Ted Cruz won it handedly. And Trump barely took second place. He almost lost to Marco Rubio in, in Iowa. I think it's going to be something to see him walk away with it. And there is a real potential for Nikki Haley to go ahead and slip past Ron DeSantis and take second. Uh, the rumors are that DeSantis will either drop out the night of the caucuses or the next day, which will open up New Hampshire, New Hampshire for Nikki Haley. Um, not really sure where that's going to go, but it's going to be at least interesting. And when Trump and Haley start actually going after each other, I, I think there's going to be a, a lot of fireworks there. But do you think I can see Trump going after Haley, but I don't see the Nikki Haley I know going after Trump, not in any real, certainly not in a Chris Christie kind of way, but maybe not even in a Ron DeSantis kind of way. No, I, I think Nikki Haley is going to make a lot of people at the Wall Street Journal happy, but I don't think she's going to you know, throw a lot of red meat to the, the Republican base. I think Donald Trump has already started going after her. The conspiracy theories are already swirling. I think he's going to eat her up, to be honest. But I do think that she's probably going to win a few states and get some, get some delegates. But I, I don't know that she's going to give him much of a, a race when it's all said and done. I don't believe that she thinks... If she has any sense, I don't believe she thinks that she's a viable vice presidential candidate. But I can see a scenario where she might think, you know, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to get the name recognition and in watch out 2028. Here I come. You know, there's something weird uh, that happens in these campaigns. Uh, you know, Mike Pence was like this. A lot of strategists and communication experts who want, you know, their paycheck, they get in your ear and they're like, you're destined to be the next president of the United States mm-hmm. of America. I think Nikki Haley truly believes that she has a chance to win this thing or that she's the candidate of the future. Um, you know, this is Donald Trump's election to lose. And I, I, I think anybody who looks at this objectively understands that. But, you know, sometimes you can get it. You can get it in your head that this is your time. I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Supposedly, that's what happened with Kirsten Cinema, the senator from mm-hmm. Arizona, that her people, that anybody who ever disagreed with her was basically drummed out of her inner circle and that the people in her inner circle were like, oh, you know, you could be the candidate that pulls the left and the right together. You know, you can't be just a rubber stamp for Joe Biden. You've got to oppose him. And, you know, you're going to be positioned to be this, you know, the, the everybody's going to turn to you and, you know, this is going to be your future. And uh, her future turned out to be little more than a footnote going forward. I really think you're right. I think that I I think it's hard for a politician to have people in their inner circle who will say, you know, you really messed that up or you you really you're really on the wrong side of this issue. That must be really hard to hear. But it's so vital, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the the real unsung characteristics that helps politicians. You know, we've talked about Barack Obama. Barack Obama really respected people telling him he was wrong. Also, Bill Clinton did as well. He actually sought that out constantly, which was actually one of the harder issues of his presidency is he sought that out too often. But, you know, when you when you sit there and you just want to be told what you want to hear, you, you get pretty directionless and you don't really take a lot of uh, thought in what you're doing. And I, I think that's a lot of what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out in the coming months. And Jared, I certainly hope 
you will be here by my side to talk about it. Literally anytime, Joan. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I believe enough snow has fallen that you now need to get back out there again. You've had your break. Put the coat on, grab the shovel, head outside. I'm grabbing my gloves. Don't you worry. Okay. Jared Yates Sexton, author and political analyst. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back for more with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joining me is Dr. John Murphy, who's a professor at the University of Illinois Department of Communication, and his area of research is the rhetoric of the U.S. presidency and contemporary politics what people say to try to convince us that their message is the correct one. Dr. Murphy, thanks for being here again. You're welcome, Joan. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, well, the most recent example of presidential rhetoric that I've seen was President Biden's speech at uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church. Uh, I don't know if you were able to hear any portions of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, if anything, you thought about it? Um, I think President Biden is really trying to accomplish two goals there. One is pretty political and straightforward. Um, he is seeking to cement black support for his candidacy. And clearly, they're a little bit worried that there's been some erosion. So there was a well-publicized meeting uh, with former President Obama. They're doing um, campaign fundraisers together, and there's a video that's come out online. And he made this appearance at Mother Emanuel Church. So the, the first part is simply you know, shoring up his base early in an election year, which is not unusual for a president. Um, the second part, though, is that he is continuing to advance the line of argument um, he made near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, uh, which is that the Republican Party is seeking to tear down um, our fundamental institutions, that they don't respect those institutions. And the major part of his campaign will be to call out the party for refusing um, to condemn January 6th for spreading lies about a stolen election. During that speech, he equated the lost cause argument um, that the Confederacy only lost because of numbers, that they had a morally righteous cause, that it was about states' rights. He called out that argument and compared it to the lies about January 6th. Um, so those, were, I think, were the two purposes of that speech. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think he really accomplished much in in that speech and he did something that i don't often see him do at least not when he does these you know when he visits a picket line or when he visits a factory he seemed to be emotionally engaged to a really deep degree that i don't always see in joe biden and i i really think that that helps his message resonate. I don't know. Um, what do you think as the rhetoric expert? Well, I think that's true. Um, and the last, again, the last two speeches have done that. Um, they are clearly working on his delivery so that he can um, work through what sometimes seems to be, you know, a, a habit of sort of reading a speech and instead getting him to emotionally engage with the speech. And perhaps it's the topic, perhaps it's the place. Maybe they're very carefully picking venues that they know will engage the president. And again, all presidential aides do that. They think about where the president will, will feel engaged and feel the moment. Um, but that's clearly been what's happening. Um, and I think it's useful to him. And it's useful to him 
for a pretty straightforward reason. Um, I mean, Joe Biden is older, and he codes as old. Um, he walks a little stiff-legged. He's losing his hair. Um, he has those things about him. And so those moments where you can really engage the audience, I think, pers- helps to persuade people that he's fully capable of doing the job. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, I was reading about how in his later years, the people around Ronald Reagan really, and, and this is a word that gets a bad rap, but they sort of handled him. They always made sure he was presented in the best possible light. You know, if um, especially in his later years when things weren't quite as sharp, you know, if there was something, if there was a new economic policy, you know, Reagan would get up there for a few minutes and say, you know, we need to do things differently. Um, we've got some great ideas, you know, and you're going to hear about all of them from my head of economic research, John Smith. And so you got the Reagan, you got that connection, but he didn't have to learn all the facts. He didn't have to regurgitate all the statistics. His appearances were much shorter. Uh, They were very well managed. And nobody seems to be doing that for Joe Biden, at least not as I can see. Do you see something like that happening? Well, uh, yeah, I think that's starting to happen. Um, But what's also true is that people were very good about that with Reagan throughout his political career. I mean, they, they that staff really set the standard most you know, sort of rhetoricians, political historians acknowledge that staff set the standard for how you present a president for understanding contemporary culture, for understanding the visuals of television. Um, John Kennedy was certainly the United States' first television president. Um, but Reagan's staff holds the, the accolade, I think, for being the first, you know, again, a neutral phrase, handler staff. Um, you think about these moments such as appearing on D-Day at the cliff um, above Omaha Beach, where he looks absolutely heroic and delivers a great speech in 1984. I teach that speech every almost every semester because tell me, it's tell such me more a about good it. Speech. Nothing. I'm, I'm not sure I'm familiar enough about it was, what you're talking about. It was the 40th. It was the 40th anniversary of D-Day in 1984. Uh, President Reagan was taking a trip to Europe, and he was invited to commemorate um, D-Day along with other leaders of Western nations, and in particular with some of the troops who had been there. And he appeared on a cliff which American rangers had ascended. And in 1984, there were still enough of them alive that those rangers were were on the platform with him. Um, and he was right at the edge of the cliff. You looked out. He was positioned such that the memorial there, which was a dagger, um, a long, tall dagger, um, emphasized his height and heightened him. You were looking out over the ocean, Um, And he gave a wonderful speech about the care and the love these rangers had for each other, about the self-sacrifice that Americans engaged in, um, about the fact that the crusade to free Europe was not an effort on part of the United States to conquer nations, but to liberate them. Um, It was really, truly an, an excellent presidential speech. It commemorated the occasion beautifully. He understood um, the purpose of that occasion. And the historian Douglas Brinkley, in fact, wrote an entire book about it, and it's generally credited with 
you know, kicking off the entire greatest generation sort of volume of cultural production. Yeah. So that was that was a that was a great speech, and it was one of those moments where clearly the staff understood that the the visual nature of that setting was so overwhelming that they needed a speech to accompany that, and they positioned him well. That's why I think. Biden's staff put him inside Mother Emanuel yesterday. He was in front of a large stained glass window. Um, He was in a pulpit, which is a position of authority. Um, He was able to address a large audience there who chanted and played a little call response with him. I think that engaged him. It also made him look more authoritative um, on television. And so all of those kinds of physical aspects of that and the visual aspects of that are what I think this staff and his campaign needs to keep doing with Joe Biden, put him in places that will allow him to be successful. Do you think for Ronald Reagan, because he had come from a acting background, a movie background, do you think those kinds of visual messages were easier for him. Maybe he was more receptive to them from all accounts. You know, Biden, I mean, has been in the Senate since his 20s. He's a negotiator. He knows how to, you know, get a deal done. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he knows how to make sure that, you know, he's got the right light from the right angle, um, you know, making him making him look better than otherwise would. I surely think it helped President Reagan. Um, He understood the presidency as a kind of performance, um, that Americans have expectations of their president. And remember, as, as good a man as Jimmy Carter was, He was a small man who really was trying to sort of de-emphasize the pomp and ceremony of the presidency after the difficulties of Vietnam and Watergate. And so Reagan was following someone who had tried to tone down the presidency. And so President Reagan, in turn, lifted it up. He understood the pomp and ceremony. He made sure to present himself Um, well as president and to salute and to involve the military and to have them standing around him and to speak in front of the Statue of Liberty or to speak um, at D-Day on that cliff um, and to understand the power of the Oval Office. He often gave speeches in the Oval Office, including the eulogy for the Challenger astronauts. So I think that was part of it. The other thing his movie career, and especially his hosting career, gave him was the sense that he's always narrating events. It's almost as if when you look at his speech text, he was a kind of omniscient narrator. He was telling the story of World War II at that ceremony in Europe. Um, and he was really good at that. And his speechwriting staff sort of understood that strength. Um, and so it was almost like he was hosting America, the show, and he could narrate our history <laughs> and bring that bring that history back to us and make us proud of that history. Um, so that was that was truly his strength. I do think President Biden's at a little bit of a disadvantage in the performative part of the office because he's such an institutionalist. I think that's his greatest strength. 
And we needed that after somebody like Donald Trump. I mean, he wants to make Congress work. He wants to make the Senate work. He wants his agencies to operate effectively. I just saw a note the other day that Secretary Buttigieg, we've had the least number of canceled flights in 2023 since before COVID, since like a decade or something, you know, not counting the COVID years. I mean, that's what President Biden is looking for. He makes things work. He works behind the scenes, which is what he's been doing with the Gaza War and with other things. And that's hard to perform. Um, that skill set is difficult for Americans to see. And he's very good at that skill set because he's had decades of practice at that skill set. So that's, I think, the challenge for the Biden campaign to find a way, and I'm not sure how to do it, but to find a way to show the American people um, that he's such an effective president in that manner, that he is able to make our government work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Along those lines, just this morning, um, Adam Kinzinger, who has a substack now and um, a sort of a podcast he posts from time to time, he laid out what he believes would be an effective strategy, uh, effective rhetoric, how to go after Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, unless you follow his Substack, you probably didn't see it. I sent part mm-hmm. of it to Andy. There's uh, two little clips here that Andy uh, put together for me. Uh, we're going to play them there together. Um, how to go after Donald Trump. I want to I want to play this and then talk to you about what you think about this particular strategy, this particular sort of rhetoric. Uh, go ahead, Andy, play that clip. I think the way to go after him, if I'm Joe Biden or anybody, is to point out how much of a whiny, weak, sissy victim like annoying, belly aching, crybaby, he really is. Like for four years, he was the most powerful man in the world. And yet he was the victim of everything in government. He, as the most powerful man in the world and in the federal government, couldn't stop these quote unquote deep state things coming against him. So let's say everything he's saying is true. He's so weak, he couldn't handle it. The truth is, it's not true. The truth is, he is a complaining, whiny, belly. I got to come up with more words because I'm just going to look up the thesaurus and just throw it out there and be like, this is every one of what he is. He's annoying and he's exhausting and we're tired of his complaining. I think if you hit Donald Trump repeatedly on that, Every time he goes on TV and complains about something, like, ah, here he goes, Mr. Complainy again, you know, with his whatever. He's just out there being weak. If you don't hit that once, don't hit that twice, hit that every day, repeatedly, how much of a victim he is, I think that will begin to set in even with his most ardent supporters. You're not going to turn him. But you're going to start saying, yeah, he's kind of whining all the time. I think you can break his facade by pointing out to people that it's not tough to stand in front of the media and complain. Like, that's just weakness. And he smells, by the way. He smells. You know what? And people are going to, they need to know he smells because it's just like he's a gross human being. Right now, they think he's untouchable. 
He's like a he's magic. He's not even a real man. He's he's like a messiah. Like no, he's a smelly, whiny, weak man. I think that is actually a winning strategy. Okay. Our expert on rhetoric is uh, Dr. John Murphy. He looks at presidential rhetoric. Should uh, should this be something Joe Biden is doing on a regular basis, saying he's weak, he's lame, he's a whiner? Oh, poor Mr. Trump. Would that um, have any kind of positive effect? Um. I'm not sure, because this is sort of what Chris Christie's been doing for a year now. Uh, I mean, former Congressman Kinzinger pretty much described the the Christie campaign um, and his rhetorical strategy. It doesn't seem to have had much impact. Um, But on the other hand, somebody more powerful than Christie doing that. And this is generally the sort of job that surrogates do for presidents. Um, this would be the sort of thing I can imagine the vice president doing or Governor Pritzker or other good, solid surrogates for Joe Biden, because for the president to do it diminishes the office. But for surrogates to do it ah. makes real sense, I think. Um, and so I think you're very likely to see, you know, if they develop that line of attack, that it would be somebody like, again, I'll use the example of our governor, J.B. Pritzker, a strong, tough um, surrogate. Uh, we are hosting in Illinois the Democratic National Convention. Um, I'm sure Governor Pritzker likes the attention that comes with that. He is not running for re-election. He would be an excellent pre- And he's a tough guy. I mean, he has no hesitation with political attacks. Um, so I think he would be the sort of person to deliver that kind of charge, to say repeatedly, this guy is this guy is just out there whining again. He's just doing this sort of thing over and over. And then if you get finally to the moment of, say, a presidential debate or something, and Trump throws one of his tantrums, that's the moment for Joe Biden to sort of pull a Reagan and kind of laugh and go, well, there you go again. This is what you do. You're just a big baby. Um, and at that moment, sort of turned to that kind of attack. But I think between now and then, it might be something that surrogates can do effectively. One of the things I talked with, um, I was talking to a political analyst earlier today, and we both talked about how there are really a number of people out there who have shown themselves to be effective surrogates. Gavin Newsom comes to mind. And yet the Biden campaign doesn't seem to be taking advantage of Governor Pritzker or Gavin Newsom. Is that what do you what do you see as the reason for that? I I must say that I'm a little puzzled by that. You know, he's had um, he clearly knows that his campaign needs a little more help. He's had Janet Yellen writing op eds in The Wall Street Journal. He had the head of his economic advisors make himself available to radio stations like like mine for interviews. Um But I believe you are absolutely correct. There is a real opportunity for surrogates to make some headway here, but I don't see it happening. Do you? Um, Historically, they're not yet, but historically, it's still pretty early. Um, Usually you start to, especially an incumbent who has no primary opposition, really, of any sort, um, you know, you'll notice he's just first now going out onto the campaign trail 
they recognize that with the advent of Republican primaries, the Iowa caucus is in, well, if it doesn't get snowed out, it's in a week. Um, and, um, and, you know, you'll follow with the New Hampshire primary shortly after that. You'll start to get um, at these elections on the Republican side, which will create media attention and will undoubtedly, at least if the polling is correct, elevate Donald Trump to the nomination. And so that's this is the moment I think we're going to start to see the Biden campaign become significantly more active. Um, and I think that a really good set of surrogates that are out there are the governors. Um, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, um, J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, Gavin Newsom of California. Um, these are popular governors. These are effective governors. Governor Shapiro in Pennsylvania. These are governors in Midwest bellwether states, except for Newsom. Um, these are people I very much hope the Biden campaign uses and uses effectively, and I suspect they will. Um, and even if he doesn't ask J.B. Pritzker, I suspect the governor will be out there with his money buying ads and doing stuff anyway. <laughs> well, do you think Adam Kinzinger's right? The way to rattle Trump is to portray him as weak and whiny? Yeah, I think... I'm not sure I'd go quite as far as he does about the smelling and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that might be a bridge too far. Rules, Though I have read are, more and more about that. Apparently he has very bad personal hygiene. Ooh. Yeah. One of the, uh, I mean, one of the rules, Carl Rove, um, George W. Bush's great mastermind, used to say is to take your opponent's greatest strength and turn it into a weakness. John Kerry was a decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. He was undoubtedly personally courageous, and they turned him into a weak, sniveling Frenchman over the course of the campaign. I sure didn't like it, but I understood the strategy involved there. Similarly, I think Donald Trump is perceived by his base as strong, um, as a strong man. And what you want to do then is to flip that perception to show that he has been consistently weak, that he's been rolled by Democrats in negotiations, run, put together ads that point out, you know, spending went up under Donald Trump and that Nancy Pelosi got everything she wanted. I mean, this is what I would be doing if I was Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, um, that uh, constantly attacking him, saying he's weak, that he's been rolled that he did not succeed as president, that you were not better off with him as president. Um, and they are consistently refusing to do that. They're afraid to campaign against him. So I don't understand why they're out there. I mean, what's the point of spending all this money, of going to Iowa all day, every day long, to, to do all this if you're not going to make any kind of a case against him? It's bizarre to me. Um, you mentioned John Kerry. One of the things that always bothered me was that John Kerry didn't, you know, when he was accused of inflating his uh, war exploits, that he he never seemed to really fight back. Is I got the sense that he was so sort of stunned that anybody would do that, that, that he just, I don't know whether he thought it would just go away or die down. I mean, I think he should have gotten angry. I think he should have gotten in the face mm -hmm. of anybody making those accusations. You know, I mean, people yeah. used to it's say, you know, like if somebody was saying nasty things about a public figure, you know, if you, you know, if you don't sue, it must be true. If you don't fight back, you know, if you try to take the high road, lots of times that tells people that there's something there or at least they feel like it tells them there's something there. 
Do you think Kerry yeah. should have fought back more publicly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they should have hit back on those charges the second they started to come out. Um, and, you know, his failure to do so probably cost him the election, which turned out to be much closer than polling and indicator. John Kerry, we have this vision of George Bush winning big in 2004. He didn't. Um, you look back at the polling, and it was a few counties in southern Ohio, and again, a few counties in Florida. Um, and Kerry came a lot closer than most people have recognized to winning that election. Um, I think, I'm not sure John Kerry's strength has ever been electoral politics. Uh, it just you know, he has been, he was a tremendous Secretary of State. He's a wonderful appointed official. Um, he never faced serious challenges in Massachusetts once he got elected to the Senate once. There are people who are excellent public servants who are not necessarily great at campaigning. Yeah. And I think that describes John Kerry pretty well. We have a caller who wants to join the conversation. Uh, our good friend Steve is calling in from Chicago. Steve, you're on with me and Dr. John Murphy. Go ahead. Yes, and I wanted to echo what your guest was expressing. I, I absolutely agree. And, and let me preface this by saying that I have a disdain for this kind of politics, but the reality is that we've got to play the hand that we're dealt. And those, those of us who are in the field know that over the last 30, 40 years, the, the length of the soundbite that is used in a... Oh, Steve, you're, you're having that problem again uh, where your, your phone is, uh, is dropping out. <clears throat> I don't know if we uh, got enough of, of his point of view to to talk about it here. Well, um, Steve, I, I you're back. Go else. ahead. Hello? Yeah, you're back. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, so I guess I have a disdain for this kind of campaigning, but it is a reality. Americans are hearing a shorter and shorter soundbite when it comes to campaigns. And, and unfortunately, insults work. You know, George Bush Jr. got elected because Americans thought they wanted to have a beer with him, as opposed to the guy who actually understood public policy. And the people who want to sort of run above it all, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, John Kerry, you know, it turns out that that, they, that doesn't resonate. What resonates is getting into the mud. And if you don't uh, fight back, it's, it's as you pointed out, it's perceived that you're you're conceding the point as opposed to, you know, John Kerry had this sort of collegiate attitude. That was his background. You know, instead, you don't get down in the mud with people like these. You just ignore them. And and, mm -hmm. and Chris, Chris Christie, if that. This kind of tactic isn't going to work for him because it can't secure for him the nomination. But it doesn't have to work uh, that way for Joe Biden. He just needs to peel away a few independents and have a few Republicans stay home in key states in order for this to work for him. Um, Dr. Murphy, what do you think about what um, Steve is sharing with us today? I, I think... Candidates need to fight back. Whether that means going into the mud, I'm, I'm not sure I put it quite that way. But candidates need to respond to those kinds of attacks, um, as Barack Obama did famously in his race speech um, when Republicans were trying to tie him to the Reverend Jeremiah Wright and saying that he was anti-American, um, that he wished to damn America. He gave a brilliant speech that responded to that. He did not let that charge just sit there. Um, he did not simply try to dismiss it. Um, he found a way to do it that really created this great speech, but at the same time um, hit back and hit back hard um, against 
those who are trying to attack him in that way. So I think you absolutely have to engage in those kinds of attacks. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. Sound bites have really continually gone down over the last 30 years, but social media has also created a different kind of environment where people just, you know, bury themselves in this stuff, conservatives and liberals alike. And so even though on television the sound bites are down, people often, you know, will watch entire speeches or will engage with podcasts like Adam Kinzinger and will do this kind of analysis in depth. So there's a kind of, you know, back and forth. Uh, I'm not, and, you know, people have these different media habits now and the media market is fragmenting. Um, and so just simply think, oh, gosh, they're just going to hear this one thing. And so you got to get back with another really short thing. There are a lot of people who like just immerse themselves um, in a lot of the campaign. So I'm not quite sure how we deal with that, but that's starting to be a big deal too. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. John Murphy, who's a professor in the communications department at the University of Illinois and an expert on the rhetoric of the presidency and politics. We are going to be taking a break for news. He and I will be back after the news to talk more. We'll be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Dr. John Murphy, who is a communications professor at the University of Illinois, and he specializes in presidential and political rhetoric. Speaking of presidential or would like to be presidential rhetoric, Nikki Haley and the Civil War. What (laughs) on earth? Um, you know, she didn't, she didn't want to use the S word. She didn't want to say slavery. She tried to avoid it at all cost. Analyze what she did and why you think she did it. Um, this is, this is going to go down in history, I think, as one of the classic gaps. I mean, it has every aspect of just totally messing this thing up. Um, ask about why the Civil War started from an audience member in the town hall. Uh, Nikki Haley discussed the fact, she believed, uh, that the Civil War started because government was impinging upon freedom. And she never mentioned slavery. Uh, that immediately started ricocheting around the Internet. Uh, because traditionally, that's the state's rights, big government justification, mm-hmm. has been a part of the lost cause myth. Um, where Southerners argued that they were morally justified to secede from the Union because the war was not about slavery, that it was about states' rights. Any cursory examination of the speeches given at the time of secession, particularly Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, when he declared slavery to be the cornerstone of the Confederacy, it became famous as the cornerstone speech, shows that that argument is wrong. Uh, Haley just was terrible here. And I think it happened because she did not trust her audience. She thought that if she said slavery was the cause, she might get booed in the immediate audience, that people would object to it, that she had such far-right people in the audience for that town hall that they would insist to her that states' rights was the reason for the Civil War. And so she bailed. But what made it worse is the next day she just kept digging deeper. I mean... And and that's what makes for a classic gaffe, that she would not simply say, yeah, I misspoke. Um, 
you know, she said at one point, I assumed everybody knew slavery was the cause, which was a dumb thing to say. But she could have paired that or expressed that better by simply saying, you know, I just I didn't even think about slavery. And I should have. I assumed everyone knew it. So I was going on to something else. And that was terrible of me. Slavery was the cause of the Civil War. I understand that completely. The people of South Carolina do. Um, I am so sorry that I messed this up. But she wouldn't do that. Um, And it's become sort of, a, I think, a badge of honor in the Republican Party since Donald Trump that you never admit that you are wrong. Admitting you are wrong shows weakness. And if you're weak, you can't be president of the United States. So she just kept digging the hole. And the difficulty is that seems to work for the mass media and Donald Trump, but it doesn't work for anybody else. Um, And so she just, I think she really arrested her momentum, particularly in a place like New Hampshire, which was the one place she hoped to come close to Trump, um, because the, the Republicans there and the independents there are looking at that statement going, geez, you have no principles at all. Um, and that's the other reason why this was a terrible thing to do, because the suspicion about her is that she will say anything to get elected president. That's what I was going to ask you about. I mean, her yeah. big uh, the big um, takeaway from her is that whatever crowd she's in front of, she plays to the crowd, her her positions. And I'm not just talking about word choice. I'm talking about positions yeah. on issues seem to move depending upon who she is speaking with. That can't be uh, an effective a rhetorical technique, can it? No, it's not. And and the thing is, if that's the big, if that's your weakness, then you can't afford to indulge that. You can't afford to do something that reinforces the existing bad narrative about you. Um, for instance, take what we talked about earlier with Donald Trump. If we, if people really do sort of hang a tag on him as a whiner, the more he whines, the more that reinforces the narrative. The more the narrative spreads, then the more he seems like a whiner. Um, it becomes mutually reinforcing. It becomes a vicious circle. And that, I think, is the problem that Nikki Haley faces now. Um, if she answers a question in another appearance or does anything that seems to trim her position on something, then this whole narrative comes right back up again. Um, people will be watching her like a hawk to see if she does this again, because that's the existing narrative and you can't feed the existing narrative. But that is exactly what she's known for. And people always, they sort of argue it away by saying that, well, what she's trying to do is she doesn't want to lose any of the hardcore Trump supporters um, but she also wants to appeal to a group beyond the hardcore Trump supporters. And when you're trying to appeal to two groups that at least on some issues have wildly different ideas, you get Nikki Haley. Yep. And and there and again, as I mentioned before the break, the the absolute inability or reluctance of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to make the case against the Trump presidency from the get-go that they are running because we need a successful Republican presidency and his was a failed presidency. And to start to tick off the ways in which it was a fail, that you've got to make the case against him. And neither one of them has ever been willing to make the case against him. 
to hang that on him, to say, we lost jobs in the four years he was president. Thousands of people died because he didn't handle the pandemic well. Um, We had lower international trade. Our trade deficit widened. You can tick off event after event after event. He's in Putin's pocket. I mean, you can make that case. And I suspect Joe Biden's going to start to hammer that case come around the time that Trump is verified as the Republican nominee, probably in in late February, early March. Well, Chris Christie has been trying to make exactly that case, and it hasn't really gotten him anywhere. Why do you think that is? Because he's got such a checkered history with Trump. Um, Because, you know, he tried it four years ago, and then he becomes a huge supporter of Trump. Um, he's flip-flopped on that issue too many times. Um, and I think that's why people don't quite trust him on that. Um, and I think even, even been, though he says, you know, yes, um, I made a mistake. I thought I could be a good influence on Donald Trump. I thought I would be able to, you know, wield some power. It was a mistake on my part. I made the mistake. I thought we were a forgiving nation, Dr. Murphy, that if somebody is willing to own up to their mistake and acknowledge it, that we are able to allow them to move on. You say not in this case? Uh, Not usually in terms of that kind of sort of public thing. I mean, we are very forgiving of private, what we regard as private transgressions. If somebody abuses alcohol, if somebody screws up like that, um, Americans are enormously forgiving. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. goes into rehab, comes out, has an extraordinarily successful year. We embrace him. We love that story. Um, But this kind of misjudgment that Christie made when it comes to the office of the presidency, um, you know, uh, I mean, this is this is a pretty crystal. It's hard to recover from that. It's like people switching political parties. Nobody ever quite trusts them after that. Um, It's very difficult to switch political parties halfway through your career. And that was, in effect, what Christie did by opposing Trump, supporting Trump, opposing Trump. So you're saying that because he did what he did, perhaps on a bigger stage or a bigger scale, he is being held to account for that in a way that Nikki Haley is not because. Plus, there's just plus he's just been around for so long. I mean, there's the difficulty that most people don't remember at all that he was a pretty effective governor. Um, he, it was a long time ago. Um and he just, you know, he's an old, tired figure um, on the political stage. And he suffered enough the last time he ran because after Hurricane Sandy, he posed with Barack Obama and talked about what a great president Barack Obama was. Republicans have got, regarded him with enormous suspicion ever since then. Ron DeSantis in particular had none of those kinds of problems. I mean, the problem for Governor DeSantis is that he's a terrible candidate, and I don't know what you do about that. I mean, he's just bad. He doesn't appear to be human very often. Um, and I, I'd be at a loss if I was one. I think they are. Uh, just a loss as one of his advisors. He cannot connect with people. He cannot talk with people. I mean, legendarily, Richard Nixon was pretty terrible in individual meetings. He probably would never have survived a system like the Iowa caucus where he had to go do that. 
But even he was better than Ron DeSantis. It's it's extraordinary. I was just talking to one of my guests about how did someone like Ron DeSantis ever even get to be governor of Florida? Because you're you're right. I mean, uh, he's he doesn't seem to like people. He certainly doesn't like campaigning. Um, supposedly, he's not even particularly nice to his donors. He doesn't seem to know how to smile like a real human being. And um, it's just it's like if you looked up worst possible candidate in the dictionary, you'd see Ron DeSantis with that big gaping maw of a, what passes for a grin. Yeah, it's it's so strange. I mean, there are people there have been people in the history of politics who did well in their states. And you think, oh, this this person could really be something. And then for some, they just freeze up on the national stage. You just take them to the next level. And it's a catastrophe that they just can't do anything. Um, and that appears to be Ron DeSantis, that, that you just, the step he tried to take is way too much for him. Um, and the stage was way too big. Um, it's like a you know double A baseball hitter suddenly getting promoted to the major leagues and sees a major league slider for the first time and has no hope of hitting it. Um, that's sort of Ron DeSantis. Yeah, he um, he's a he's a really interesting creature. But I suppose I mean if he's term limited with governor, um, and unless he was going to try to run for senate, you know maybe. Um, you know, I mean, I remember before he really emerged on the national stage, two things, Republicans talking about how it was the second coming of the Kennedys. You know, this young, attractive guy, young, attractive wife, these cute young children. It was this was going to be their their Camelot. And um, um, I remember reading about that. And I also remember seeing social media posts from journalists in Florida that said the only reason there is so much buzz around Ron DeSantis is because none of you know him. This is a guy who is not going to impress anybody on the national stage and just sort of like just wait, just wait to see how he implodes. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, everybody... You know, was saying this kind of thing. How bad could he be? I mean, come on. How bad could he be? We've had bad politicians before. And now I'm like, oh, my God, they were spot on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Now, he's done it over the course of this campaign in these repeated appearances that you see clips of in which he's just robotic. But it, you know, it reminds me of, if you remember, um, Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, um, who was an Indian American. He was elected governor of Louisiana in roughly 2006 or something. And he was supposed to be the GOP's Obama, um, that he was going to transcend racial barriers, that he was charismatic. And he was asked to give the State of the Union response one year and gave a legendarily bad speech. Um, just it was so terrible, it destroyed the rest of his political career. Now, Ron DeSantis hasn't had a single moment like that, but there's a similar dynamic that you just wonder whether 
he can truly recover from this campaign. I mean, there doesn't seem to be another office that's immediately available to him. Um, He has to hope that if, God forbid, Donald Trump is elected, that Trump deigns to give him a cabinet post or something. But even then, I'm not sure Trump will. I mean, he's not going to forgive the quote-unquote disloyalty of Ron DeSantis. So I think, you know, at the end of this, this guy's out there in the wilderness. Um, I don't know what he does at this point. I think the other interesting thing about DeSantis um, that's a little bit beyond sort of my expertise is rhetoric, but a little bit of a part of it, is that DeSantis was the darling of the Republican moneyed establishment. They thought they could get a Trump without Trump. Mm -hmm. He could speak to the base, but still do all the things like help rich people. Um, that they desperately wanted. Um, traditionally, Wall Street Republicans have, you know, liked candidates who can sort of stir up all the emotions about the social issues, but not really take them all that seriously while delivering on the tax cuts and the deregulation and all the things they really like. And that's always been their formula. Um, they thought DeSantis was the guy. But it turns out now that there's this split in the Republican Party where even the fact that DeSantis gets this money from them automatically taints him for a lot of Republicans. That, oh, if he's their candidate, if he's the establishment candidate, you know, I don't it's, – it's really a season of, mm. you know, of helplessness for some of these Wall Street Republicans because they don't want to support Democrats. But at the same time, the Republican Party's base has finally had enough of them. Um, and is thoroughly in support of America First policies and high tariffs and other kinds of pol- and anti-immigration that the business wing of the Republican Party absolutely adhors, just hates. So they're really the people without a political home right now. You mentioned the business arm of the Republican Party. What was the thought process, do you think, in Ron DeSantis making such an enemy of his state's biggest employer, Disney. Yeah, boy, I don't know what the thought process was there. I mean, I think it's obviously a signal on DeSantis's part that while Trump talked a good game about taking on wokeness, DeSantis actually did it. Uh, and I think that's what he wanted to sell people on. It was part of his early theme to say, you know, Trump talks about all this stuff, but I actually did this stuff in Florida. Um, and going after is, Disney was supposed to be going after wokeness, not going after yep. the state's largest employer. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, boy. Yeah. And it, I'm not sure that one was really well thought out. Um, you know, he was on fine ground when he was picking on people like me, universities, professors, terrible people who are trying to indoctrinate the next generation. Everybody's on board with that. But turning on Mickey Mouse is probably not the smartest move one should make. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what he thought he was going to gain from it. Maybe he thought he, you know, I mean, because there was that move back in the beginning where he tried to sort of take over. There's this, a government commission that rules mm-hmm. on all things Disney and does, you know, the infrastructure and all that. And he thought, you know, he was going to take over that commission and then Disney would have to dance to his tune. And it sounds like his lawyers got outmaneuvered by the Disney lawyers who found a way, a workaround 
to I can't remember exactly what they ended up doing, but they basically negated his efforts to bring them to heal. And, you know, if I were Ron DeSantis and I know that nobody's going to take, you know, advice from me on this, but I'm thinking, okay, this is the biggest employer in my state. I want to suck up to them. I want them to like me. I want them to give me lots of money for my campaign. What can I do for you, Disney? How can I be your friend? Was that not in anybody's playbook? Well, first of all, what a surprise. Disney had better lawyers than Ron DeSantis. I am shocked, shocked to learn Mm. that. Um, But I think, you know, this is the way that all of the businesses and and major corporations are, this is the problem they're facing with the Republican Party. In turn, what the Republican Party is facing with them. The base of the party doesn't like them. And they need a particular, they understand, for instance, that DEI, that diversity, equity, and inclusion are helpful. That if you wish to sell products to all Americans, and they desperately wish to do that, and the people all around the world, um, then you should have Japanese Americans in your corporation, or you should hire an Indian to do a particular job, or this or that or the other thing. That this makes real sense, that you appeal to people in this way. And so having decent policies for that, that you get better employees when you provide child care on campus, that you get better employees when your health care includes um, women's abortions and birth control and that, that you can sell your workplace to people to better qualify qualified people by doing that. And so that's what they're doing. Capitalism is driving this. And it turns out a big chunk of the Republican Party does not like raw capitalism very much. Um, They don't like appealing to lots of different peoples and selling products to them. They don't like free trade. They don't like all of those sorts of things. They don't like immigrants coming in and being able to do good work and open businesses. They don't like any of that. And that's precisely where many of America's corporations want to be. Um, The same thing is happening with the military. It's trying to bring in people and suddenly, you know, we're shocked that conservatives are attacking the military. Well, it's because our military is becoming increasingly diverse. Um, and they understand they need to do these things in order to attract and retain the best soldiers and, and yeah. sailors in the world. Um, and so that's that's the real conundrum. That's the problem that you're, the split you're starting to see, I think, within the Republican Party is that what they claim to be woke values are actually pretty practical ways to do capitalism. Um, And the rhetorical appeals to diversity and so forth do great things like attracting employees and and doing that sort of stuff. And so, especially young people. Um, And so that's why so many young people are moving out of rural areas and going to places like Chicago or Los Angeles because they have opportunities there. They can live their lives the way they want to. They get support there. Um, And it's a really a tough nut to crack for Republicans. This whole move against diversity, equity, and inclusion sometimes seems to me to be a thinly veiled 
uh, white supremacy, a, a thinly veiled racism, mm-hmm. because, you know, if we don't have to have those people, if we don't have to have those people, there are more jobs for you. It seems to be almost like a subtext. Am I reading too much into that? No, I don't think you are. I mean, we are in the growing pains of a nation that has only been a multiracial democracy since 1965. Um, We we are only 50, 60 years into this experiment. Um, And that's a pretty short time, historically speaking. And throughout much of that time period, white people, particularly white men, constituted a majority of the nation. Um, the population demographics really started to change with Ronald Reagan's administration and the immigration bill of 1986. Um, and then the 90s saw some of the highest rates of immigration in American history compared to the turn of the 20th century. And so it has permanently altered what the United States looks like. And that's what we're struggling with now. Yeah. So um, as far as rhetoric of all the people who are in the national spotlight right now who do you think is the most effective speaker whether they're in office or whether you know anybody that you know would be a name that was somewhat recognizable to folks who do you point at and say man that person they've really got it I think about three people. Um, one is our governor JB Pritzker I'm becoming increasingly interested in him. Um, and in how he develops appeals, how he makes arguments, what he does. Um, I'm starting to follow him more closely. He's interesting to me. Um, the second one, and she is incredibly uneven, is the vice president, um, Kamala Harris. There are moments when she just rocks the house, and then there are moments when she just falls through the floor. Um, and it's difficult to predict when one or the other is going to happen. So she's inconsistent, but at her best, she's really something. And finally, um, Pete Buttigieg just always impresses me. He's really good. Um, He can do interviews. He can do speeches. um, The format doesn't seem to matter. Um, He always expresses himself well. He always seems to be able to get into whatever the audience's mind is figure out how to talk to them without abandoning his own principles. Um, And that's a pretty amazing skill. With the unevenness of Kamala Harris, do you think that's because of her speech writers? Is it because sometimes she's ill-prepared? What do you attribute that to? Because it seems like you're either good at this or you're not. Oh, I'm I'm not. I think she's just inexperienced. She was only in the Senate two years, and then she got bumped up to the vice presidency of the United States. I mean, Barack Obama managed to do that with the presidency, but, you know, Barack Obama's come along once in a generation. Uh, She's just, you know, I suspect she will continue to get better at this. Um, I I said to somebody... And she'll get better at those. Yeah. Somebody was asking me if I thought she was good. And I said, it's not that I think she's good or bad, but she's had such a, the problem with having such a meteoric rise is that you don't have the experience. You know, your resume is impressive, but it's short. And I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing with her. Yeah, campaigning is hard. Giving speeches is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, Both John and Robert Kennedy took a long time to round into shape. 
And they were able to succeed, at least partly because dad had so much money, they were able to overcome their obstacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took them a long time to get where we remember them to be. And that's <laughs> worth remembering today. Yeah. Dr. John Murphy, uh, professor at the University of Illinois Department of Communication. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Last time... I tried to get Ray Long to join me on the interview to talk about the lengthy Ed Burke trial he had covered. The jury inconveniently decided to come back with a verdict like minutes before we were supposed to go on the air. And didn't that darn Chicago Tribune reporter go off and do his job Well, I am still on the case, and I have been harassing Ray Long to get him back on the radio, and I have finally worn him down. He joins us today. Hello, Mr. Long. How are you? Hey, very good. I hope you heard me laughing in the background there. I absolutely uh, did. You know, I love doing your show, show, Joan, but, you know, when uh, duty calls, I have to run. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it was quite a day. It was quite a big day. Tell us everything um, about the Ed Burke trial. Walk us through day by day. Yeah, it was uh, just the idea that Ed Burke, a guy who had been around for 54 years in the city council, was now going to trial was uh, um, an amazing story in itself. But he's a guy, he's not just like a backbencher. He's been the finance chairman for years and decades. And uh, he was accused of basically shaking down people to um, get business for his law firm. And that came in the form of a couple of events. One was and the biggest one involved the old post, which went under uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of renovation. And um, that uh, he talked to one of the main developers there, and uh, he was trying to get the developer to send tax work to his law firm. Well, uh, they eventually sent him some business, but it wasn't for the, the post office. It was for renovation of another building uh, downtown Chicago. And once uh, once Burke uh, received that uh, business, he was ready to go. But then uh, shortly thereafter, he police got raided by the feds. You know, John, it's been surprisingly, it's been back in uh, November five years ago that uh, this raid took place in his city hall offices and his ward offices. And and uh, shortly after that raid, uh, Burke's office sent back the contract to represent this uh, developer on that oh. building. So there was that. There was that episode. There was another episode in his ward that uh, dealt with a Burger King owner. Now, this Burger King owner is a big owner of restaurants, and he's based in Texas, and he has a, a, more than 100 in the Chicago 
area. And so uh, Burke was uh, saying that uh, this guy needs to deal with his uh, city permits. He had an inspector go out and and take uh, and take a look at the place, and they eventually stopped work of remodeling the Burger King uh, because uh, Burke's office uh, had sent out inspectors. Well, uh, the whole issue came down to, at least it's the way the prosecutors argued it, that uh, Burke was trying to hold up progress on this remodeling job at this uh, Burger King and his ward in order to try to get uh, the owners to send him a property tax appeal business for his for his private law firm. And as you know, uh, like I said, there were more than 100 uh, uh, restaurants that uh, the, the, these owners had. And Burke's office, once uh, the owners agreed to send him work, uh, Burke's office uh, sent an email to the uh, owners, uh, uh, people who deal with all these uh, issues, and said, "We, the, the, those folks said, how many of these uh, properties do you want to represent? And Burke's office says, we want all of them. So they said that in email, and they, uh, you know, there were, there were those two episodes. Those were the two biggest known. There was another one dealing with a, a, a developer named Charles Quay, who was convicted of sending property tax business in an effort to try to get Burke to clout in uh, putting a, a, a sign up for Benny's Bear Depot in, in a uh, Portage Park uh, development. The, the other one, which I thought was probably the the, maybe the cheapest or less least uh, less of a big deal, I guess, is the way to put it. That uh, he uh, was threatening to, and this was on tape, like many of these things were, uh, threatening a, the Field Museum with uh, trying to block their admission fee increase because he said that uh, the Field Museum had uh, failed to respond to his request to put former Alderman Terry Gabinski's daughter on as a paid intern that Burke had recommended. So, yeah, <laughs> because I read it was a, a paid little internship. bit about that yeah. last one. And, yeah. you know, you say it very unemotionally, but, you know, the way uh, the way I read it, I mean, Burke was really, really insulted and took yeah. the person he spoke to, like yelled at her. And I, I believe yeah. the museum president ended up reaching out to him and apologizing. Right, right, right. And I think, you know, uh, I said it was the lesser of, of the counts as, as I saw it, but it was uh, uh, one that uh, didn't leave any doubt in the jury's mind. And some of the reasons were for what you just mentioned there, Joan. Uh, yeah, there were phone calls uh, played and he sounded angry about it and he sounded uh taken aback that they didn't uh, hire uh, the recommendation that he wanted and the uh, and the field museum uh, president uh, came up and said you know how to do it when when you call we jump so yeah um, they uh, they um, 
really laid out a case that uh, helped wrap that one into a conviction, too. And I know you were in court, so you have a better sense of this. But from what I read, it really sounded like just an absolute unchecked ego because it was kind of like, do you know who I am? And you, you know, nobody <laughs> even responded to me. Like, how dare you? You know, and I, I hate yeah, that. whole. Yeah. Whenever anybody pulls that, you know, do you know who I am, whether it's spoken directly or implied? I just I find that so offensive. And, you know, I mean, you submitted somebody's name for an internship and didn't get a response. And then it's like, we're going to we're going to go nuclear on this. Yeah. Yeah. The Just to, to take you back to the scene a little bit more here, um, the Field Museum had known that uh, Burke had opposed an increase at one of the other museums a, a year or so earlier. And uh, the Field Museum thought it was a good idea to have kind of uh, pre-attack uh, meeting with him so that he would understand why they were seeking this um, admission fee increase because they needed it to help cover costs. And uh, oddly enough, the Field Museum uh, is one that has to take its uh, requests up before the Chicago Park Board. Well, so that gave Burke a little in there, and he thought that since uh, he knows people at the park board, that he could uh, use that leverage to try to uh, rattle the the folks at the Field Museum. In the meantime, when the park board person reached out to Burke, she had no idea that uh, Burke had sent this uh, rendition for Terry Gabinski's daughter to have an internship, a paid internship. And um, when he answered the phone, he says, well, I'm a little surprised to hear from you because you didn't respond to my uh, request to put this uh, friend of mine's daughter on your payroll in an internship. So that feeds into your concerns too i think yeah <clears throat> and i mean you know there you go um you want to look up quid pro quo in the dictionary <laughs> hey you're calling me about this well you know what about that what happened about that thing so the jury hears all of this as you were sitting there in the courtroom did you think to yourself oh my god this is overwhelming this guy's going down or did you think, well, you know, maybe he could squeeze, uh, find a little, a little daylight to squeeze out of this? Yeah, I thought that if the jury, you know, another piece of context here on this was that the jury got the case only a few days before Christmas. So they had the week before Christmas to uh, hear closing arguments and then make a decision on the case. And and so um, I think that probably helped them focus a little bit and get down to business because there was a lot of and nuances that they needed to sort through. But when I was looking at it, I thought, well, if they're trying to give Burke a break, maybe they'll uh, acquit him on the poll sign, and maybe they'll acquit him on the field museum, but they certainly, the prosecutors certainly have put it on, on a case that could give 
the jury enough uh, room to pull the the guilty uh, trigger on each one of those. And as it turned out, uh, there were 16 counts against Burke, and um, the jury came back with guilty verdicts on 15. And so um, the only one that they uh, did not uh, convict him on had to do with a a little uh, uh, reference to the Burger King. Interestingly, uh, Burke had an aide who was also a co-defendant. His name was Peter Andrews, Jr. He's a longtime 14th Ward guy, and um, he was acquitted in the case, and his his, uh, case was only related to the alleged... uh, Burke shakedown of the Burger King folks for the property tax business. And so he was acquitted. Charles Quay, the guy who was a developer at, uh, that uh, wanted to put up the pole sign at uh, uh, his development uh, for Benny's Beverage Depot, which has a store there, uh, he was convicted. Interesting, interesting. Um, I know the judge told the jury, you know, I don't want you to rush. I need you to take your time. And if it looks like you don't have a decision by Friday, don't worry. I'm going to give you the holidays off and we'll come back in January. Um, And I thought as soon as I heard that, I was like, "Okay, here we go. It's a complicated case. There's all these charges. We're not going to know till 2024. That obviously, obviously didn't happen. So clearly it must have been. Um, pretty obvious to the to the jury what to decide here. Yeah, I think they must have uh, really looked it over closely. One of the jurors that we talked to uh, had said that they went back into the jury room and there were all kinds of uh, efforts to discuss it. And what they did was they listened to every one of the recordings that the prosecution presented, uh, and they played them at least once. Now, don't recall, this was like a hit parade of recordings here. This was um, this was where Burke was uh, reaching out to um, uh, government mole, uh, the former alderman, uh, Danny Solis, uh, and saying, uh, uh, did we get business uh, from the old post office? Did we get uh, business from my pri- my uh, private law firm? And what uh, uh, the way that Burke said it was much more Chicago-esque. It was, uh, did we uh, land the tuna yet? And <laughs> <laughs> that was a classic, of course, and he had also been recorded as saying uh, things like, uh, I'm not motivated because uh, the cash register hasn't rung. So uh, it, it uh, was a, enough that the jury uh, could uh, conclude that his motivation was not necessarily pure. Do you think it did him any good to have his wife uh, former Illinois Supreme Court Justice Ann Burke by his side every step of the way. I mean, I saw a few little, um, you know, shots and it was like, you know, these two old little old people kind of, you know, um, together. And I thought, well, you know, maybe the jury is just going to feel sorry for them. I don't know. Did, did that did that help him? Do you think at all? It, I mean, I guess if you're convicted on 15 out of 16 counts, you'd have to say not very much. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I I wondered about it. I thought they could have played that. The Burke team could have played that card um, more to draw more sympathy. They did re- reference in, in closings that you know his family's been here. Not only was uh, Ann Burke there, but his kids were there, and um, there was a priest often there too sitting in the front row, a lot of times the uh, family sits in the second or third row, but they were sitting in the front row. Anne was only, you know, steps away from from Ed, who was sitting at the end of the defense table the whole time. Now, I guess it could cut both ways. If you play it too hard, wonder why, uh, you know, uh, Ann Burke may have been uh, an Illinois Supreme Court justice, and maybe the prosecution could have played up the idea that uh, Ed Burke was uh, the chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party uh, committee that oversaw judge selections, and uh, that even if he didn't uh, play a major role uh, overtly into helping her uh, build up uh, that career where she landed on the appellate court um, and then became uh, a member of the Illinois Supreme Court. You got to wonder, um, and you could place in in uh, people's minds whether there was just you know too much political back scratching involved in something like that. So I guess it, it could cut both ways. They chose to to not play up uh, her. Um, position on the court, um, but they certainly had her uh, playing the uh, loyal spouse, and uh, she clearly was a loyal spouse, and she uh, stood by him uh, through thick and thin of this trial. You said you thought that maybe his defense team could have played up the fact that his wife and kids were there more than they did. What would that have looked like? I mean, you know... Um, I mean, I, well, obviously, you know, you could mention it in closing arguments, I suppose, but yeah. um, without having anybody take the stand, how could they have done that? I think I think they could have uh, brought it up. I think they only referenced it in openings. I think they could have planted it in the jurors' minds earlier. I'm, and I'm not I'm, I'm sure they thought about it, but they probably have good reasons not to. But um, and they could have played it out, uh, you know, when they were doing closing arguments, uh, some of uh, the things that Ann Burke uh, had had been noted for, or just I'm sure there are restrictions that that would have uh, not allowed them to go into those seventeen verses about um, her accomplishments herself. But um, it seemed to me that they gave it a little uh, short shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, talk to me about sentencing. Well, uh, he's not sentenced until Janu- uh, June 19th, um, an odd date to start that sentencing, because uh, if you think back, Ed Burke was... Uh, a major thorn in the side of Harold Washington, the first African-American mayor mm. in Chicago. And June 19th is Juneteenth, which is oh. the day that people celebrate, uh, you know, the final uh, 
release of uh, slaves in Texas um, in the Civil War. So it's, uh, you know, I don't think that was an intentional decision, but it sure is uh, an odd juxtaposition. Ray, um, you've covered court cases before. I know that for all the charges you're convicted of, there are either mandatory sentencing or there are sentencing guidelines. And yet you've got a defendant who is, I think he just turned 80, if I'm not mistaken. How do you, I mean, you know, even even a five-year sentence could be a life sentence in this kind of situation. How have you seen judges, you know, sort of balance that out? It's really uh, almost judge by judge, Joan. It's a it's a hard one to figure how they're going to do it, but clearly they will take uh, Burke's age and health into into consideration. The uh, defense team, uh, Burke's team, will obviously try to. Uh, play up the idea that it'll be very difficult on him and that he could very well be a life sentence um, if they give him one that's very long at all. Uh, On the other hand, uh, they have uh, shown uh, at different times that they've uh, given uh, people break after they've been sentences too. You can go back all the way to the Dan Walker sentencing. He's a former a Democratic governor who was basically uh, uh, convicted of raiding a, a savings and loan that he uh, owned back uh, after he was governor. And the judge said, uh, you know, he was uh, basically ra- using the savings and loan as his own piggy bank. Well, he was sentenced to several years in prison, and, and then uh, he uh, argued during that sentence that he he had caught cancer and didn't have much time left to live. And then he got out uh, early as a result of that, and then he lived for another 20 years. So I just don't know how these things are going to I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at that. That's <clears throat> Yeah. And he, you know, he may have thought he was going to die. I don't know, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's it's a weird balancing act that they yeah, have to Yeah, because go on through. the one hand, you don't want to set a precedent that, oh, if you're old, you can get away with anything and it'll just be a slap on the wrist. But on the other hand, right. you know, you send somebody to prison for what, you know, in a in a regular younger adult would be a certain amount of time and they end up dying in prison. That seems overkill if if uh, if i can use yeah. that word in in that particular way yeah. uh it kind of seems like it's really going to be a very tricky thing and i bet there's going to be a lot of people a lot of observers who no matter what the decision is are not going to be happy with it oh yeah yeah there's people who just don't believe he should have been uh prosecuted at all because uh they are Big believers that uh, Ed and Ann Burke both have been uh, big pluses for this town and that they've done a lot of things. On the other hand, there are people who have seen uh, the other side of Ed Burke, including the time that he fought uh, uh, Harold Washington at every uh, turn, uh, that uh, would believe that, uh, you know, the punishment is. It's been too long for his mm-hmm. comeuppance, and his comeuppance is way overdue. Uh, Ray, it's um, 
it's very gracious of you to join me on the radio, and I really appreciate oh. you doing this. By the way, I didn't mention Ray's book. Um, on the other Illinois politician, um, Mike Madigan, the house that Madigan built, uh, that sentencing is uh, being held up pending a Supreme Court ruling. But we'll have to have Ray back when we learn more about that one, too. Yeah, his trial is being pushed back till October now, Joan, and uh, then we'll have a whole lot to talk about. Yes, yes, we will. Uh, Ray Long writes for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, sometimes we can get him to join us on the radio and, and share all that knowledge with us. Ray, thank you again. Always great to be with you, Joan. Thank you. You're very welcome. That is going to do it for me today. Uh, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends, and good night.